Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, hello, how are you? It's Daryl and welcome to episode 26 of Cage Rage and Nicholas Cage podcast guided by myself to you the humble rages journey on the train to true cage nirvana by spending a little bit of time each week watching each and every film the greatest actor of our generation has ever been in and on the way we can be a little bit closer a little more understanding a little bit more receptive to the greatest hog the golden hog that could only belong to nicholas cage This week, it's a big one. It's a very big one. There are certain films that are just too big to tackle alone. So I've brought on some help in the form of Tom the Virus Broom Jones, uh, a film buff who I've known for a few years through a website we both occasionally write for. He jumped at the chance to discuss Con Air, a film which many say is the best Nicolas Cage film, the definitive Nicolas Cage film. It's a film where, if you ask your average Joe out on the street, when you ask him what's your favourite Nicolas Cage film, there's a 90% chance, a 9 in 10 chance, they're going to tell you it's Con Air. There's a 0.5 chance they'll say it's Face Off. That remaining, they might just say to you, how dare you waste my time with such a silly question, it's the greatest actor of our generation, uh, which is what the elite answer would be. But very excited to talk about this one. Um, it's one I've been looking forward to since I started this thing, just to get into a little bit of the um, peripheral stuff, the nitty gritty stuff before we get into the conversation with Tom. Con Air, if you don't know it, it's a film, if you're of a certain age, a certain generation, you've heard of it, you've seen it, and I think it's not too bold to assume you've probably enjoyed it as well. So let's get into the synopsis here. Just paroled army ranger Cameron Poe, Nicholas Cage, is headed back to his wife, but must fly home aboard a prison transport flight dubbed Jailbird with some of the worst criminals living. Along with Diamond Dog and Baby O, genius serial killer Cyrus the Virus Grissom unleashes a violent escape plot in mid-flight. Secretly working with US Marshal Vince Larkin, Poe tries to foil Grissom's plan. Or, as Poe in the film himself puts it, they somehow manage to get every creep and freak in the universe onto this one plane, and then they somehow manage to let them take it over, and then somehow manage to stick us right smack in the middle. It's an action thriller film from 1997, directed by Simon West, written by Scott Rosenberg, and produced by Jerry Bruckenheimer, who you may also recall produced Cage classic The Rock, you may remember that name from last week, on a budget of $75 million, Conair grossed over $224 million worldwide, with over $101 million of that coming from North America alone. Clearly, all in the midst of cage fever in the mid-90s there. What a time to be alive. Americans filling out cinemas all over the country to witness one of the best films from the greatest actor who's ever lived. They're all standing with their arms to their heads in that army saluting pose, hogs raging at full mass, the truest and most honourable form of salute for Nicolas Cage. How I wish I could have been there to salute with them. 
Now, despite perhaps controversially only having a mere 55% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, it was by and large a hit with critics, with honorary hogger Roger Ebert praising the film's visual style and verbal wit, as well as Andrew Johnston of Time Out New York saying, Leaving The Rock last summer, I thought it seemed physically impossible for a more over-the-top action movie to be made. That was pretty short-sighted of me, since it was only a matter of time until producer Jerry Bruckenheimer topped himself, as he does, with the wildly entertaining Conair. Guan the Bruckmeister, have yourself a well-deserved status of honorary hogger courtesy of your boy. Now, in terms of awards, Conair was nominated for both Best Original Song and Best Sound at the 70th Academy Awards, but unfortunately lost out on both to a small indie flick known as Titanic in both categories. You may have heard of it. Henceforth, James Cameron is now an enemy of Cajun progress and not welcome on this train to true Cage Nirvana. You go down with your ship, you piece of shit. However, however, the film would go on to win the coveted Golden Raspberry Award for Worst Reckless Disregard for Human Life and Public Property at the 18th Golden Raspberry Award. So fuck you, James Cameron. You just try and take this prestigious award away from us. You can take your Titanic, what's left of that fucking ship, and shove it right up Uranus. I fucking dare you. So with that said, that out of the way, we'll get in now to uh, the chat I had with Tom Broom Jones over it. Like I said, big film buff. There's not many people I know who know more and have more insight into film in general than this gentleman's. So it's a pleasure for him to join me on the journey to True Cage Nirvana. Uh, just ahead of us as well, we did record this episode over Zoom in these unprecedented corona times. Um, the most unprecedented thing being the amount of times the word unprecedented has been used since March. You have to make do. You have to make these uh, sacrifices, so the audio may sound uh, a little bit different from what you're used to, so I do apologise in advance, but hopefully put that one side and enjoy episode 26 of Cage Rage, the Nicholas Cage podcast. So joining me, as mentioned in the intro, on the journey to true Cage Nirvana this week, Tom Broom-Jones, thank you very much for joining me. It's a pleasure to have you for... What some may say is the biggest, hoggiest Nick Cage film out there. Um, so I think that the best way just uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself, but how you first came into receipt of knowledge of the greatest actor of our generation, Nicolas Cage, and uh, what your thoughts on him and his hog are. You don't have to talk about the hog. I'll t- I'll talk about it if need be, but. Uh, feel free. This is a this is a, a hog inclusive zone. Yeah, so my name's Tom Broom Jones. As you mentioned, I'm a freelance content writer. I write about entertainment, and I have actually written about the cage in my past. Uh, I write about films, television, professional wrestling, mixed martial arts. If it, if it's on TV, if it's broadcast, I've probably watched it or written about it. Uh, Nicolas Cage, probably in my top five favourite actors of all time. I think that he gets a really bad rap and I've had many an argument with people over his abilities before. And I, just, I think he's 
it's weird because he's won an Oscar and he's been nominated for loads of awards. He's got a deceptively solid filmography and there's different speeds with Nick Cage. There's dramatic Nick Cage, action hero Nick Cage, uh, the more meta Cage of the 2000s. And then my favourite Cage, which is currently uh, the, the current Cage, which is weird indie horror movie Nick Cage. So I'm sure when the podcast gets to Mandy, I might see if I can come back and talk about <laughs> that because, oh my God, I've been a fan of Nick Cage now since... Oh, I don't even know. It's I think because I grew up in the 2000s, my first exposure to Nick Cage was probably his blockbusters. So stuff like National Treasure, yeah. Ghost Rider, which I still defend as a good bit of pulpy fun. I think the first time I saw Nick Cage in a film that I where I was like, oh, this this guy's actually really quite good, was probably Lord of War, which is still one of my favorite Nick Cage films. Big fan of Kick-Ass as well. I watched that when I was about 15. And yeah, I started to sort of put things together. I looked into his history. I looked into stuff like uh, Leaving Las Vegas, Adaptation, which um, you'll come to soon, which I think is his towering performance. And I just looked into the enigma that was Nicolas Cage and all the wacky stuff the the weird spending habits that he has buying <laughs> yes. dinosaur skulls and castles and classic cars and action comics. Number one, uh, a, a true Renaissance man of our time, a man who invented his own acting style, uh, sh- shamanic nouveau, I believe. I believe yes. Yeah. For Ghost Rider, I think. I've always been drawn to charismatic oddballs and I think that Hollywood needs more of them I think Hollywood needs more actors who just they 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 don't care they throw away any kind of pretense about who they are and they go no I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it I'm going to throw myself into it Uh, how can you not love this man he he is one of the only true artists in Hollywood today and I think Conair just exemplifies that because this is a film where he, where just your average action star would have just brought one speed to it. But this is a film with, I think, more layers than it's given credit for. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of stuff you touched on there, which I could uh, happily discuss. I mean, for myself, you said discovering came in the sort of 2000s. Me as a child of um, sort of the early 90s, born in 91. For me, it was like, and this sounds like an odd comparison, but like in a Bigfoot sense, he was always in the background. You could sort of dip in and out and he always had some kind of presence there. So I think my first exposure to him properly, um, and you might sort of remember this yourself, there seemed to be that period in the early 2000s when like Fast and Furious was like the only film franchise in the world and everyone was just obsessed with muscle cars and speed cars. Um, so I remember seeing him in a Gone in 60 Seconds, which oh, yeah. friends yeah. of mine used to watch just all the time. Like it was always rented from like a local video place. Um, yeah, I remember those. <laughs> I always just seem to remember him just, 
I can't remember what the song was, but it's like yes. Um, oh, it's um, not Mambo. No, it's not Mambo Number Five. Lo- <laughs> I wish it was. Uh, <laughs> is it Lowrider? Is that the song? I th- yes, he does. Yes, I know the I know the scene you're referencing now. Yeah. So he, in, he's in got a way a that only that. Cage could. Yeah, you look at him in uh, what is it, Bad Lieutenant, when he's. I mean, he doesn't have a dance scene in that, but he shoots a man and says his soul's still dancing. And he's just, <laughs> he's just always present. And I, I actually did a bit of, I got a bit of a tidbit here for you. I did a bit of research before coming on. The last year where we didn't see Nicolas Cage in a film, 1988. Look at that. Incredible. 30, over 30 years of Cage, consistent Cage. He is the reverse Daniel Day-Lewis. He's not picky about his projects. He's not going, oh, oh, this script needs a rewrite. He's going, no, I'll do it. Why not? I'm in. And I exactly. love it. Exactly. This is this is one of the things that I think you always have to appreciate about Cage, and it kind of links to this film as well, because I found that any time I've sort of um, asked anyone, what's your favourite Nicolas Cage film, there's like a 90% chance they will say it's Con Air. And I always find it interesting that he's been around for so long, so consistently, and yet despite the absolute untouchable back catalogue of films, which you touched upon earlier, there are still so many divisive opinions. He's like the only actor in the world, I find, that you say his name and people either love him or they will just write him off and say, well, I saw that video of him losing his shit on YouTube, not interested in him. As an actor, he only does bad films. Think I think, and I don't know if this is this is kind of what other Cage podcasters and surprisingly, there's like twenty of us out there have called um, <laughs> Cage Home Syndrome. Basically, we've watched so much Cage at this point collectively that we we've developed this uh, like sympathy for him, and we're just undyingly defensive of everything he does. But I think maybe he's sort of very more selective of his films than maybe we give him credit for. I think he's one who values the art of acting, uh, the process of it. It's more than just a job. It's a lifestyle for him. He values the craft incredibly highly. So I think he just sees films that he can put spins on and add all this characterization to and just sort of, runs with it and I think like we were saying he just takes it in these directions that you just won't expect from anyone else he's saying that the nouveau shamanic acting style that he came up with for Ghost Rider I think it was putting was like thousand old artifacts in his clothing and just acting with them like who else (laughs) who else is doing that no one else is touching him on that yeah I I I think that at this point Nicolas Cage has become a genre uh, unto himself and it's interesting that you mention how Con Air is frequently brought up as everyone's favourite Nick Cage film because I would agree because I think there's a difference between a Nick Cage film and a film that Nick Cage is in if that makes any sense Yeah, yeah. So, like, I'd say the best film he's in is probably Adaptation but I'm, I'm just a I'm a Charlie Kaufman fanboy so of course I'm going to say that uh, but I think for pure entertainment value and for pure machismo hogginess and also me as a big character actor nerd, 
Con Air is the ultimate. I mean, it, it is a film that I've never not been entertained by. I've, and everyone I've ever watched it with has been entertained by it as well. It's it's a relentlessly likable film and it's a relentlessly watchable film as well. Oh, yeah. It's so, I mean, I think just about two hours or so before recording, I just finished my rewatch. Um, that's kind of the joy of this podcast, sort just rediscovering a lot of films in order as well. Like last week, The Brock, which I forgot what a wonderfully and oftentimes just weird film um, that's a great textbook film. Michael Bay but it's so I, good I wish I wish Michael Bay still made stuff like that so good um, I think it seems to be too obsessed with uh, Transformers doing slow-mo flips on bridges at the moment yeah um, but we can, we can remember the good times that's the joy of uh, the internet we can we can cast out the bad by and large and remember the good times um, for me Con Air I, I, I don't think I've seen this in about 15 20 years it feels like that long myself and it's fun even though some of these films are getting on 20 years um old a bit longer some of these are still so much cheesy fun and they still hold up um including conair again like the rock last week with conair this week and i have a slight suspicion uh for me face off next week there are these films that you finish them and just think that was ridiculous but it was so good and i want to watch it immediately again and that was Connor for me but I was um and I don't know if you'll agree with this as well I was saying to someone the other day when you look at the cage repertoire this streak of films that he's on at the moment when you from leaving Las Vegas to the rock to Connor to face off irrespective of what you sort of think of cage himself I just think did any other actor have such a magnificent streak of films like in this in at any point in their careers as well I, I don't I think if we're boiling down I think that based on these films you could make a strong case for Nick Cage ruling the 90s and, and that's a hell of an accolade because oh, yeah. the 90s I think gets a bit of a bad rap and it wasn't perfect and I think that when people think of the best action films, the 80s is usually brought up as the gold standard. But I think the 90s carried the torch really well. And I, I think we were at a point where a lot of these guys, um, even outside of Cage, like Schwarzenegger and Bruce Willis and Stallone, a lot of these guys started to do more interesting projects. Schwarzenegger with Last Action Hero, you know, they had the meta action film and... Bruce Willis was showing up in Pulp Fiction and Stallone was doing Copland. And I think this was an era of great experimentation with mainstream Hollywood stars uh, just sort of flexing their power and throwing themselves behind quite unique oddities in the Hollywood canon. And I think Con Air is no exception. And you mentioned Face Off, which obviously you'll explore uh, later next week. But with Face Off, you have a film where you have a Hong Kong action icon like John Woo coming over to America. And obviously it wasn't his, his first American film, but teaming up with guys like Cage and John Travolta. And I think if you're talking about an era of experimentation and just doing these really cool high concept action thrillers, 
Nick Cage led the charge. The Holy Trinity, as you mentioned, The Rock is awesome. It's so different from anything else that was being made at the time. Michael Bay, we, we weren't sick of him at that point. Um, Face Off is probably top five John Woo, and that's saying a lot because John Woo's got one of the best action filmographies ever. And then Con Air, which I love because it exists in this weird vacuum. You look at the director, Simon West, and how he, he didn't really do anything else on this level after or before. You, you look at the canon of, of Jerry Bruckheimer and how rich that canon is. And I feel like Con Air sticks out to me as the quintessential Bruckheimer production. When, when I think Jeremy Bruck, Jerry Bruckheimer, and he's a very powerful, respected Hollywood producer, this is the first film I think of. It's got such a charm to it. Someone said, right, let's get a load of great actors, stick them on a plane, and they cause chaos, and we'll see what happens. And it, it's, it's not pretentious. It wears its heart on its sleeve. And it's got genuine charm to it. It's not snarky. It's not cynical. It's an earnest action thriller with a great cast and amazing set pieces. Uh, practical effects that have aged very well. A bit of dodgy CGI, but, you know, that was part of the course back then and kind of is today as well. Yeah, I don't think there's anything else like it. And I don't know if you'd ever see a film like this made these days because it's not part of a cinematic universe and doesn't have... 50 million different Easter eggs referencing other films in it. So I think we should cherish films like this and preserve them and celebrate them. Oh God, absolutely. I mean, I was thinking in the interim to recording this with you and had trying to think of films in recent memory that are similar in their over the topness and their cheesiness and just celebration of just over machismo. And I couldn't really think of anything and it touches on what you said, it seems, uh, Everything needs to be part of the universe. It needs to be high concept. Um, sort of, I know there's, there's a lot of arguments made for living in the age of nostalgia at the moment and the pros and cons of that, but it makes me sort of miss just, dare I say for lack of a better term, simplicity of times when films were just explosions and guns and sometimes uh, for better or worse, not so much in this, but Sometimes a plot was there, sometimes it wasn't. It never really mattered because the body count just went up and more things blew up and that was what sold a film. Um, and there were some other things that you touched on there. Obviously, the action heavyweights, your Schwarzeneggers, your Stallones. Just doing some reading up on this, apparently those were two of the names that Cage had to beat out to get this film, uh, Schwarzenegger, wow. Stallone, uh, Dolph Lundgren, Bruce Willis, Steven Seagal were also in contention. Oh God, if, it, if Conair had Steven Seagal in it, it would not, it would not hold up as a classic for me. No. Uh, no. no. Direct no, to video. <laughs> yeah, there's... Uh, uh, <laughs> it's not that I have a vicious hatred towards Steven Seagal, but he's one of those that was always on the... Uh, I think the outer circle of action stars. Yeah, he's he's like, a poor man's there. action star, 100%. <laughs> like, um, he was always there, but I was kind of like, what? Was it just because he made so many films, his name got brought into the same conversations? Or um, did he just have the right connections? He's a mystery. I've, I've actually read up on this. Apparently there was a bet between some Hollywood producers. I, I don't know the veracity of this, but... 
apparently it's kind of a trading places situation where there was this bet that they could take someone with no acting skills whatsoever and make them into a star. And Steven Seagal just, I, I don't know how true this is. I just read it one time. It could be bollocks for all I know, but it I like to believe true, that though. he was, yeah, he was just plucked from obscurity. Like, right, this guy has the charisma of a wooden board, an action star and see if we can pull it off. It sounds uh, yeah, true. And that's why it Swatch, sounds believable. Schwarzenegger, Stallone, he ain't. But that's the thing, though, is Nicolas Cage, as you mentioned last week, and again this week, beating out Schwarzenegger for these roles. Cage doesn't get brought into the conversation enough as an action icon, I don't think. I think, And it's the same with, like, Keanu Reeves, because these guys are so sort of, I guess, unassuming when compared to their muscle-bound counterparts. But there's something to be said for the smaller, less assuming action hero. And I think that when you look at guys like Nicolas Cage and Keanu Reeves and I guess Tom Cruise as well, although he's just sort of Tom Cruise. He's kind of his own in his own little area. I think Cage has the strong... It's between him and Keanu Reeves for the strongest action catalogue of the 90s. Reeves does have Point Break and The Matrix and a film that I think warrants comparisons to Con Air and Speed because I think that I was thinking about this a while ago. Speed and Con Air are the two best diehard rip-offs. Like 100%. Yeah, Um, I'd agree with that. Speed is diehard on a bus. Con Air is diehard on a plane. But they are brilliant. And they are not in any way uh, derivative. They do their own thing. They put their own spin on it. And a film like Con Air just tickles all my film nerd bones. It's got a wonderful ensemble cast. Big, crazy gonzo action. Um, John Cusack's in there. Who doesn't love a bit of Cusack? Uh, yeah. What what's not to like about this film? Maybe a bit a bit on the long side, but aside from that, it's pretty flawless, I think. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, with, with John Cusack there and Steve Buscemi, who's also in it. Um, again, some of my behind the scenes reading. Apparently, they were the only two actors who actually had these parts written for them, so they were selected from the get go. Um, who else but Buscemi could play the part? We'll get into it later, but <laughs> who else only but, he could play that part. Who else but Buscemi as just the... The most some, evil man. <laughs> the most evil yet somehow weirdly prophetic serial killer who uh, is weird and yet gets a happy ending, I say with a question mark, um, as opposed to the other characters. Not to jump ahead of myself too much. Um Another really random thing, and this is just touching on what you mentioned about the director Simon West. So, from what are I read, are you going was... to say it? Are you going to say what I think you're going to say involving a, chance... a certain viral video trend? There's a chance I'm going to say something you think I'm going to say. So, despite this being his first full-length feature, his other most incredible accolade that apparently he directed the music video for "Never Going to Give You Up" by yep. Rick Astley. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it was coming. Um, I found that out today myself when I was doing a bit of research. He helped birth possibly the greatest meme of all time. That that's incredible. What a what an accolade! I mean, genuinely fascinating that 
you would go from directing music videos, which is, you know, a challenge in itself. And then you tackle perhaps one of the, the standout action films of the 90s in Con Air. Uh, you, wouldn't, you just wouldn't put those two together. And I'd be so interested to understand <laughs> the journey of Simon West, of how he went from filming Rick Astley in a trench coat under a bridge in New York, I assume, to being out in the, the Utah desert filming explosions and Cage running from explosions. And this, this is not a small action movie by any means. This is big. We're talking scale. We're talking scope. This is a, this is a big, loud movie. The style of which kind of matches Cage's acting style. <laughs> yeah, no, this um, is a $75 million budget for this, which I'm yeah, assuming... Which for the time, especially, was, was huge. I'm assuming he didn't have quite the same when he was working with Rick Astley, but um, what, what a journey. What a journey. I want to talk to him. I want to sit down and chat with him. He's still making films now. I mean, I, I like to th- hope that maybe he's on some kind of social media. I know some people are quite, um, I say secretive, and rightfully so. They have every right to their privacy. I've said it before, but the one person I wish was on social media was Nicolas Cage. But um, he's one of those people who sort of notoriously private, other than, as you mentioned earlier, the stories we hear about him buying these dinosaur bones and castles and being uh, like a huge Anglophile, being sort of obsessed with England. It's like these stories we hear about him, we just need them to be true because it helps this, the legend of Cage grow. It adds to the, the mythos, of course. Yeah. It's like I, I was um, speaking on another podcast to someone from America about uh, Nicholas Cage and uh, you may have heard of this story uh, for New Year's just gone in the UK he just turned up in a pub in Somerset brought the entire pub around and that just makes me think like what an honour why, why, why wasn't I there that's what I'm thinking oh no just imagine you're just there like oh you're thinking mm, you know not going to be the best New Year's got work in the morning so I have to have a few social pints but have a quiet one Suddenly, in rocks the golden hog himself, Nicholas Cage, and he's asking you what drink you want. That is, for me, the very definition of this is a dream. This is not real. I'd be nervous. What what drink was? What 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 would you say, Daryl? What drink would you ask Nick to buy you? I mean, on this podcast, especially, I'm no stranger to a a crack and rum and coke. But at the same time, I. Would, I think my inner fangirl and coward would come out and be like, oh, I don't want to trouble you, Mr. Cage. I don't want to... I'd start cowering and, like, <laughs> slurring my words. Like, I'll just... I'll be like, I'll just, have, I'll, just have, I'll just have whatever you're having. And then one drink in, it would go to my head. I'd ask him if I could touch his hog. That's probably what would end up happening for me. Because um, how many other times do you get the opportunity to ask Nicolas Cage in person about the golden hog? It is true. Uh, I think I'd just ask for a J2O orange and passion fruit, to be honest. That's probably the the most <laughs> the polar opposite of, of your answer. But uh, I, know. I don't my, drink, so I've got to choose my options wisely. <laughs> my answer would end up getting me put on some kind of list, but some sacrifices have to be made. Um, but yeah, yours, I think Nicholas Cage, like, oh, J2O for my, for my friend Tom over here. Uh, oh, that was a good impression. That was solid. One of the few impressions I've tried to work on is uh, is my cage. Um, 
but we're saying about Simon West, we're saying as well about Q Sack being one of the few people written in for this film. Uh, I'd also read that um, he'd briefly expressed returning to the for a potential sequel. Um, Nicolas Cage mentioned something about it in the same year in 2012. Simon West joked in 2014 that a sequel would have to be set in space with like robo convicts and half cyborg prisoners, which is a concept so outlandish that I don't even have to question if Nicolas Cage would have agreed to that. Kind yeah, in space, sign me I, up. Yeah, a kind of sequel is really hard to sell just because of the specificity, I suppose, of, of the premise. Having said that, in Die Hard 2, there is that bit where John McClane just goes, how could the same thing happen to the same guy twice? <laughs> so yeah. I, I guess just with a single line, you can, uh, you, you know what, if Die Hard gets 50 million sequels and Fast and Furious is, is what, coming up on the ninth one now, like, why not? Yeah. Why not Con Air 2? Um, isn't what, Fast what and Furious... Well, exactly. I mean, isn't Fast and Furious supposed to be going to space at some point as well? I hope so, because they've done everything they can on Earth. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there's, you, you achieve a certain level of fame with a franchise, and then you get The Rock, and then it's, well, what else do we do? We've got The Rock. Yeah, I, 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 enjoy, I enjoy a good faff movie as much as the next person. I think they got a lot better like at that halfway point, Fast Five is when they started to get really good, which is weird, kind of the reverse for most franchises. But uh, first four, eh, five onwards, ah, really good. So I think in a world where we can have nine Fast and Furious films and 23 Marvel films, I don't, I've lost count. We can have two Con Airs. There's room for another Con Air, as ridiculous as it sounds. Put it in space. Why not? Why the hell not? I, I want to see Nick Cage in space fighting cyber convicts. I don't know about you. <laughs> he escapes. He gets in an escape pod. Sandra Bullock from Gravity's there. Hold, do the whole whole shebang. Get Let's on have it. A, a multiverse of space films colliding. Have, have Rick Astley cameo. Please. Please. I mean, tangentially linking as Danny Trejo's in the film, I'm still bitter that we never got Machete in space. That we were supposed to get that. Um, I think they they teased the trailers for it. Had like a, what is it? The like a like a lightsaber machete at some point, and then we never we never got that. I think I'm just at a point where I just need more films to be not set on this planet. That's where I'm at. Um, in my interests, I hope we'll see Nicolas Cage in space. As we're saying with his sort of horror artsy films that he's doing at the moment I mean he's had some dabblings with space in um, uh, sort of colour of the colour out of space um, which is I was hoping it would be well that was a weird one because like I think with Mandy it, both of those films were they were and weren't the films I was expecting them to be but um, well, they were kind of cosmic horror I suppose yeah, I think from the, the trailer traders, I was kind of expecting sort of out, out of just ridiculousness. But Cosmic Horror is, if that's the genre that we're getting with Cage at the moment, 
I'm, I'm all for that. If that's what Con Air 2 needs to be, Cosmic Con Air Horror. Oh my God. I'll, I'll take that as well. Lovecraftian creatures just bleeding through wormholes. We should be, should we copyright that? Should we trademark this idea? If someone listens in and steals this, I'll be, I'll be pissed. <laughs> I mean, Netflix will take any idea. So, uh, well, they'll, they'll turn it into a show and cancel it after two seasons. That's what they'll do. As long as I can get um, a change.org petition at some point in my life, then I know I've made it. <laughs> that, oh, that, I, was, <laughs> I was looking at IMDb and um, just was like some more trivia about this, and it mentioned something about a Con Air sequel being mentioned in a YouTube video with the idea of it being called like Con Air to Con Airport or something. I was like, oh, that oh, sounds Jesus. interesting. But I watched the video and it's as far as I saw, it didn't make any mention of Con Airport. This was a video like 10, uh, 10 bizarre sequels that never happened or something like that. Um, the only mention of Nick Cage was the um, unfortunately short-lived Superman film, Death of Superman, um, helmed by Kevin Smith, which unfortunately we never got either. Um, so Con Airport and Nick Cage as Superman, just two things that we can only, I think we can only dream of. I'm, um, I'm literally looking at one of my Superman comics just across the room right now and just thinking to myself, oh, oh, what could have been? His, he named his son after Superman. Do you know uh, that? His yeah, son is called Kal-El. Is it like Not Kal-El? Clark. He didn't <laughs> name him after his civilian persona he didn't just call no. him clark like a normal person he's like no you're called cow l his actual kryptonian name and i think that's amazing just to know that nick cage is a massive superman fanboy. he's a nerd he's one of he us is. he is he's one of the boys he's one of the real ones and i and i say that um as awkwardly and as whitely as it could possibly come from someone who is as caucasian as i am i but mean nick cage is in many ways kind of like I don't know. He's, I think he's kind of the the summation of white actors in a way. He's, he's just, if you want to talk about crazy white people, I feel like Nick Cage kind of fits the bill quite well. I think he's on the Rushmore. He's yeah, on the yeah. Pantheon. <laughs> Is that it's him, Bill Murray, two other guys. So, I don't know. That's another podcast. That's uh, that's the whitey. Whitey Actor podcast, which uh, Crazy White Guy podcast, which, which sounds vaguely problematic as I describe it. I mean, we'll trademark it anyway, just yeah, just one, in one case. For the, one for the back burner. Yeah, I was. I mean, I was thinking like, who else has got a uh, like a back catalogue as like cages? I Oof. wondered like, would it would it be Defoe? Maybe Willem Defoe is the only person that sort of springs to my mind as maybe also having that, and I think to coin the term that "quote unquote" Cajun range of you can be uh, Willem from, Defoe and Nicolas Cage occupy a very similar space. I, I can I can see that. I look at Willem Defoe and I look at him doing something like a Green Goblin. But then in the next breath, he's playing Vincent van Gogh and getting an yeah. Oscar nomination for it. And then I look at him in... Um, have you seen The Florida Project? No, I haven't. But It's I'm a beautiful, 
beautiful, heartbreaking film. He's in that. He's he's incredible in that. And then The Lighthouse, which is this crazy, weird horror movie um, that I've not seen, but I've seen The Witch, which is by the same director, and I love that. So I, I think that um, it, it, a fun thought experiment for me would be if you took Nicolas Cage and Willem Dafoe and thought, what if we swapped their careers? What if they took all of the other guys' roles? What chaos would that unleash on the universe? Jesus, like Dafoe and Cage in a, a Freaky Friday Oh my God. Could you imagine? Man, Nicholas Cage is the Green Goblin. <laughs> I'm something of a scientist myself. <laughs> I'm something of a scientist myself. <laughs> oh man. I mean, I, sometimes I, I think a few years down the line, you know, when, if this podcast catches up to how many films he's done, what would the next project be? Oh, he's pumping them out five a year at this point. I mean, we've, there's still a lot COVID of might. COVID might slow him down. That might be the only thing that can halt him for a bit. But yeah, I think, yeah, the only thing that can stop Cage is a, a global <laughs> pandemic. That's what um, it took. That is what it took to suppress Nicolas Cage. That's what it took. All I ask is that I can make it to when uh, the unbearable weight of massive talent releases because I want to see the most meta cage film ever committed to cinema i just want to make that. it that far he's making um, a film where he plays himself isn't he yeah um the unbearable weight of massive talent i think it's filming in croatia at the moment I oh that's know. the actual name of the film oh i thought i thought you were literally just describing his unbearable weight of massive talent <laughs> i forgot the name well, i just knew he was doing a film where he, where he played himself well it's very easy to con- to confuse the film title and his acting style as well um, but that one is I'm very excited for that apparently he's oh, playing yeah. himself as a younger person as well the same age he was when he did that uh, infamous appearance on Wogan so <sighs> yes the Wild at Heart era oh so oh, I am heart. oh hoping, fantastic I am hoping that maybe we'll see that revisited but we will uh, we will wait and see um, I think as, as much as I could happily talk about Cage until the sun consumes us all or natural causes take me, um, we'll, we'll dip in now to Con Air. Um, I'm ready. I'm ready. It's, it's the moment I've been waiting for, you've been waiting for. Uh, I, re- I requested this episode when you announced, well, you, I think you posted on Facebook and you were saying you were doing this podcast. When, this must have been a year or so ago now. It feels like a year. Feels like it. Um, maybe more. And I just said, I commented and I said, yo, man, uh, hit me up when you do the Con Air episode. And sure enough, you were truly our word. Here we are. What a journey. So much has happened between then and now. Oh, man. I mean... Oh, who would have thought? Look at us. You know, who who saw are. us here right now? Who's, who saw <laughs> us talking about Con Air on a Saturday afternoon? in October, uh, but I, I, like I said, it feels like it was a year ago with everything that has, that has kicked off. Um, in a year for me, that will be, if nothing else, encapsulated by the unprecedented use of the word unprecedented. Um, but f- I was checking like my notes in my phone just with uh, people who would like asked, oh, can I do this episode with you? And I 
made that note in my phone like back in um like back in april so this one has been like six seven months uh in the making and i was like if i was a better planner i would have messaged you weeks ago like oh just a reminder carnea's coming up but it was literally like on wednesday i was like shit yes i was supposed to message tom about this at that point i was like he might have a thousand other things to do at which point hey that's that's totally on me but we made it. We're here. We've both watched it. Um, I've just watched this like a few hours ago. Um, and it's, I think as much as his evolution as his acting styles, you know, we've got like some more of a artsy and almost almost romantic in some aspects cage from the 80s. Now we get this period where he's doing action films. It's also interesting just to chart the, the journey of his hair as well, because that can oh, yeah. be as much of a character as anyone else. I mean, as the film starts, US Army Ranger Cameron Poe returning to his pregnant wife with the short hair we've seen from The Rock. Um, after a little scuffle, an altercation, it's flowing, it's down to his shoulders. He's, and, I, and I'm gonna say, I say it most episodes, guy's looking good. Guy's oh, looking yeah. real nice. He's doing handstand push-ups in prison. It's all going oh. on. Handstand push-ups in denim. I, I think I can't focus on this enough. In denim, tops off. Um, I'm here for this each and every I, week. Yeah. I, I love the opening montage of this film. I love it. I, I think it, it it lays everything out so well. The opening bit of the army range is just saying, you know, you're the best of the best of the best. You meet him. He's He comes in listens to his wife's stomach, listens to his little baby. Oh, lovely. So it's, he's such a, a warm, nice man. And then he defends his wife's honor, kills a guy by accident. Bam. First degree manslaughter. And straight away, I'm hooked. I'm feeling for this guy. He's, he's done nothing wrong. He's a victim of circumstance. And straight away, you within the first five minutes, you're rooting for this guy. You, this is how you throw an audience behind a protagonist. This is how you make someone relatable. And I, I, I this is the film student in me coming out now, but I'm going to say it. This is good writing. This is good characterization. This is a great way to set the stakes up for a film. You know what he's fighting for. Yeah. You know why he's doing it. And you will support him on this journey. And I, I think it's a great bit of writing. I think Cameron Poe is one of the better Cage characters. He's definitely, I think, to use the analogy again, uh, potentially a Rushmore of Cage characters. Oh, if you think the definitive, 100%. the best, Poe's going to be on there. Um, if you push me to think of another three, just to get the range of Cage, I'd possibly say his character in Mandy, just to show an idea of where he is now and what he's doing and how he's still relevant oh, yeah, yeah. after such a career. The other two, I think, up for debate. Part of me says we'd possibly have to put uh, the character from Vampire's Kiss on there because that's the, the, the ship that launched a thousand memes. Um, but face number three, I think that's that's a debatable one if we're talking the the cage for. Um, so that would have to require some deeper research. But um, like I said, uh, shout out to Scott Rosenberg who wrote this and. When you're creating uh, sympathy for a character within five minutes and 
telling this story of how he's gone through all this jail time, sort of kept his head down. The one thing keeping him going is the idea of getting back to his uh, his daughter, Casey, who he's never met before. He's just got the picture and the adorable letters that she sends to him. She's going to, they're going to, what is it, her July 14th, her birthday. They're going to see each other on her birthday and he's got a present for her, the bunny, which will, which will, uh, no, which will be a, a good MacGuffin, a good through line, I think, a great prop for this film that provides, uh, uh, in many ways, this bunny has its own little arc. And uh, again, great use of a prop, great, great use of uh, production design. Um, I like his relationship with his cellmate, Odell, hands him the, the snowball at the start. Uh, I don't know if that's wise, given that he's a diabetic. That's <laughs> what we'll, we'll go on to learn. Probably shouldn't be feeding a diabetic guy baked goods and sweet treats in prison. But no, you know that's what? That's really true. He's, I didn't realise. I've only just realised we were watching it. Like, Hang on. He's diabetic. I wouldn't be giving him yeah. sugary, sugary sweets in prison. I mean, I he's suppose... He's only if, allowed so much insulin. I mean, if I suppose if I had a... And I'm not sure what um, I think his, his prison name is Baby O. Um, Baby O, yeah. That's it. If if I was Baby O and I had um, I feel like a five ten stretch, whatever it was that he had, I think at some point I'd be so bored. It's like you know what, a bit of joy, Let, bit let's, of joy in life. You know? Let's let's just risk it all for just a few seconds of just relief. And if it gets me a few days in the hospital beds, then that's the way it's got to be. Um, I also found it interesting that you mentioned that the bunny, um, and this goes back into uh, part of why my hog stands at full mast for Nicolas Cage. A lot of the time he fleshes out his characters. Apparently it was his idea for Poe to have the pink bunny as he wanted it to be symbolic of the the pain and loss that Cameron and Poe, that Cameron Poe had gone through. Um, Additionally, apparently he also spent time in Alabama to perfect the accent as well. So when you want to talk about a guy giving 110%, you talk about Nick Cage. Yeah, he's, he's adding layers to the film, to the character. Um, proof that he takes his, his art seriously. I, I defy to find me other actors that are that committed. You know, he, that, that bunny birthed the most iconic line in this film, which again, we'll get to. And it really communicates kind of his disconnect as well from his daughter, which is the, there's a tragedy to it all of just like, well, I don't, I don't know her really. I've talked to her with letters, but I, I've never actually uh, met her because he doesn't want her to see him as a, as a prisoner. He wants her to see him for the first time as a free man. So he's just like, well, what a, what the little girl's like. Well, all I can get her is this this little pink bunny. And it's, he's trying, bless him. You know, he's trying so hard. He's been a model prisoner. He's learned a bit of Spanish in prison. He's got into, frankly, amazing shape. And yeah, um, when you finally get to see Cage in the tank top and you actually get to see <laughs> the level of dedication to this role, you know, Cage... He's not a, he's not particularly a muscle bound freak, and in, in the Rock, he's quite uh, physically unassuming. So to see him in this film with a body that you could believe a U.S. Army Ranger would have, 
I, I defy anyone to call him a lazy actor. And he he, he oh, goes yeah. for it. He absolutely. Yeah. He goes whole hog, if you pardon the pun. <laughs> and I will not. You will make those puns and commit to. Um, I mean, this, this makes me think like, you know, he's going to Alabama, studying the accent. Would you have got that from Steven Seagal? I don't think you would. I think Steve, Steve, if Steven Seagal was in this film, no bunny, no, uh, he, he'd beat everyone in, in two minutes. He'd rip Cyrus's dick off and throw it out of the plane and then make <laughs> a, a pun, a, some kind of cheesy one like, no, it, it wouldn't work. I think this has to be him, has to be Cage. Yeah. Um, he had, he brings a level of humanity to it that um, your superhero types, like your Schwarzeneggers and uh, your Seagals, don't have in their roles. And I love Arnie. I do. I love a bit of Arnie, but he's a very different actor. Cage, even in roles like this, there's, there's a level of humanity and empathy. And this is actually, ironically, for being one of the more gonzo Nick Cage movies, one of his more restrained performances, I would say. It's quite a tender performance. There's, yeah. But there's this simmering rage to him because you know he doesn't want to... You know, what landed him in prison is, is being this, this killer who's, who's been trained by his country to, to just fight and to, to survive. And you can see him trying to suppress that and be the good man and, and the husband and the father that his, his wife and his, his daughter need him to be. And it, it allows you to dive into this frankly ridiculous premise and buy it. You know, Nick Cage guides you through it. He plays a real dude. I feel like I could know a Cameron Poe, that I could yeah. be friends with a Cameron Poe, that I could talk to a Cameron Poe. He doesn't feel like an out-of-this-world character. And I think that is the intangible that Nicolas Cage brings to roles like this that, that other actors don't bring. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this in Cameron Poe is probably the closest to the archetypal uh, straight shooting action movie hero that we will see Cage as in The Rock. He was a bit more of an everyman, sort of just a man a bit has his specialism. He's a bit out of his depth side by side with Sean Connery getting shot at. Um, but he can sort of take care of himself. Here he can take care of himself and he's looking good doing it his arms are usually out and you don't always see Nicolas Cage that built I think the last time he was probably bigger was in Kiss of Death I think that's the biggest I've seen him so far um but like you say this is the man that commits to the roles and I'll defy anyone to say that um, take his best film take his worst film you tell me you look me in the eye and you tell me Cage is not giving it a hundred percent, because that is the talk of a micro another who on this podcast we do not respect and we have no time for whatsoever. Um, so it's well, like I say, he's got the he's got the pink bunny. We've got that connection through the pink bunny. He can reach out to his daughter, and I don't think a toy bunny has ever been so important in a film before or since Connor. No, I'm, I'm trying to think. Uh, no, I think if we're doing our rankings of the greatest toy bunnies, shout out toy bunny and Connor. I don't have a name for it. I think we should just call it Bunny. Oh, bunny. Bunny. That's the name. 
that's what it's called. Uh, the greatest toy bunny in the history of of cinema. And absolutely, yeah, he he's he's got a he's got a goal. He's got a goal. He's going to get that bunny to his daughter through hell or high water, or in this case, through a plane full of nutters. He's going to do it through the jailbird. Um, oh, jailbird! What a plane, though! What a plane! Um, but you're saying he was learning Spanish. I noticed he was also learning origami as well. He's keeping himself yes. busy. Model prisoner, like you say. I enjoyed all the letters he was reading from his daughter. Although there was one I noticed, his daughter seemed to be expressing to him that she may or may not have been getting bullied at school. And he just kind of went, <laughs> like shaking his head, like this is the classic hijink his daughter gets up to all the time. He's like, yeah. Yeah, he, yeah, <laughs> he says, you know, oh, school's important. You're going to meet people like that. And he educates her. He's giving her life lessons. He says, you're going to meet people like that that will make your life hard, but you have to focus on what on what's important. So there's a great parallel there. He's, yeah. he's instilling values in her that he holds. And hopefully her life goes a bit better than his did. But he's been a good dad, or at least he's trying to be a good dad. Um, hard to do when you can only talk through letters and... I think again, if this film came out today, um, you know, he'd be able to FaceTime her or email her. Or, it would feel less personal. I think that the setting works, the timing works, the 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 adorable letters with crayon and, and little drawings, all little nice touches. And 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 I, I I do not know the name of the production designers for this film, so I, my apologies to them, but. Great work on the production design with this film. It all looks wonderful. There's tiny touches that build up the world, that build up the character. The plane's great. The prison's great. It all looks fantastic. That $75 million was was well spent. They, they to, to quote uh, the great John Hammond, they really spared no expense here. It's, it's a great looking, feeling, tasting movie. No complaints on my end. No, absolutely. I mean, a lot of different uh, choppers and planes used in this that you can see where a lot of the budget went between aircraft and explosions. Um, but what I appreciate in this, I mean, you get a lot of films within the action genre, a lot of secondary characters who just, they fall into the background. They're kind of just cannon fodder, not really important. What I did appreciate um, and fairly soon into the, the overarching uh, sort of time span of the film is that it, even some of the more background, smaller set pieces and characters, it does take the time to introduce you to these characters. Uh, Vince Larkin, John Cusack, of course, who becomes sort of very important, is wearing some bitching sandals, may I add. I, I love that it was a camera shot that just took the time just to let us see that he was in sandals. Um, for what reason, you know, who am I to judge if it's supposed to tell us, hey, this is your grounded kind of marshal who is a, is a I don't know if, if, if from a film student perspective, sandals mean something in the, in sort I, of the mise en scene. I don't know, things. I've had that before. It's, if you watched, if you've ever seen the film Sicario, 
Josh Brolin's character is introduced in that wearing uh, wearing flip flops. I've read theories on that of how well he's special forces, so he gets to dress casual. So maybe it's that with John. He's very easygoing. He's also quite a gentle, understanding man, and I, he's got um, a great. I guess we should talk about his role in the film. Really, is he's yeah. he's coordinating this this mass transport of prisoners. You, you've got this this plane that is just rammed with society's absolute worst. But unfortunately, the ironically, Cameron Poe is due up for parole on that day, so he is going to be on the same plane with just the worst people uh, and his cellmate. Baby O as well, who will also be on the plane, which as the film progresses, that adds a nice little bit of tension. And yeah, Vince Larkin has to help coordinate this whole thing. But then there's this great um, intersection of the plotting where there's uh, there's a guy on the plane who uh, the DEA are really trying to squeeze for information. And once he's a free man, they're not going to be able to inter- interrogate him anymore. So the DEA, they have a guy on the inside. I really like that. They actually sneak one of their agents onto the plane and he's going to be sitting next to this guy and sort of trying to get a bit of info out of him, getting to squeal. So now the DEA are in on this and they're led by a character whose name I cannot remember, but he's played by the mighty Con Meany, who is... The great character actors, yes, of our time. Um, Agent Duncan Malloy. I've got down yes. in my, my notes. Here. Um, Col- Col Meany, I think the ultimate hey, I know that guy actor, <laughs> yes, uh, probably most famous for Star Trek. I would say, was it, I think it was Deep Space Nine he was in? Um, yeah, he's, he's yeah. always got one of those faces like I've seen you in so much, and yet I still forget your name, which is it says more about me, but said the ultimate well, who's that guy. I think that's why this film works, though. You mentioned how the side characters could just be random Johnny-come-latelys, but this kind of has a bit of a Coen Brothers approach, where if you ever watch a Coen Brothers film, which, well, we've raising Arizona, you've had a Coen Brothers film on this podcast, obviously. Yes. Um, they okay. have a great thing with their films where there'll be random characters who will have a scene or just a line but they'll be memorable. You, you know, I, The Big Lebowski is a great example of this. That's chock full of one-off characters that you never see again, but you remember them. And Con Air, not that it's like a Coen Brothers film, but it has that same philosophy of we're going to populate this plane with actors who you know. All these characters are going to be fleshed out. They'll have distinct personalities. They're the worst people on earth, but in different ways. And <laughs> yeah. That I think everyone has kind of like a favorite Con Air character. And I think that works. And as they're getting onto the plane, there's this rundown of who they all are. Yeah. Um, the, and we meet, well, we meet the villain. We meet, uh, we meet Cyrus the Virus himself. Big John Malk himself, Cyrus oh. the Virus. Um, and obviously we'll, we'll discuss Malkovich because he just eats up every scene is in endlessly watchable but um as you said we get the rundown of a number of the convicts not all of them but almost in a like a suicide squad style of way yeah, yeah. we get um 
we get Billy Bedlam. Uh, he found his wife in bed with another man, then went to his wife's family's house, killed the entire family. I mean, including the dog. Including the dog, which is... Bastard. That John was, Wick could have him. <laughs> irredeemable. If Wick was the undercover agent on that plane, Bedlam's finished. Uh, we get Ving Rames, Diamond's dog. Um, a black militant killed some uh, gun-loving white folk. Now he's on the verge of a, a movie oh, deal starring Denzel he has a, Washington. Yes, he has a great... There's a great, some great lines, but when Cusack just goes, uh, they're talking to Denzel for the movie, it's just... Oh. That was just like, oh, right, this is, I like this. This is cool because we're talking about Ving Rhames being played by Denzel Washington. This is a level of meta that I was not anticipating in this film. Yeah, it kind of made me think if um, if DD Diamond Dog had just, uh, even if he wasn't on that plane, he would have maybe had some kind of strong law case to get some money from the film rights anyway. So there was argument for him, despite his crimes, to be a made man elsewhere but here he is uh, side by side with the next prisoner um john malkovich cyrus the virus cyrus grissom uh killed 11 inmates to my notes incited riots escaped multiple times is quoted as being a poster child for the criminally insane but he's got degrees so swings and roundabouts he's a learned man and he there's also i think the best line in the film and there's a lot of great lines but there's just one line where if you want to introduce a villain and let an audience know what they're about with one line where John Cusack says uh, he he likes to say that he's killed more men than cancer. Yeah. If you just want an impression of how messed up a mass murderer is, when that's how they describe themselves, and again, John Malkovich... That's genius casting because you just want a guy that that can sell this this sick, cunning weirdo. You get Malkovich. He's the man. He only does Malkovich, but he's. it's not like he's not aware of that. The film being John Malkovich exists, for God's sake. He, he is John <laughs> Malkovich. He knows that he's unapologetically... John Malkovich. And it's funny that you said about Buscemi and Cusack being the only actors that, that were locked in. I'd love to know who was on the shortlist for Cyrus, because I, I can't, I don't think I can envision anyone. Well, interesting you bring that up. That was something else noted down. So like Cage, Malkovich apparently had to fight for the role. Uh, undeniably incredible as Cyrus the Virus, and I think coming away from the film, I couldn't envision anyone else doing the role the way he did it. Um, apparently, it was initially tipped to go to Gary Oldman. Um, okay, okay, I can, I can, yeah, I can respect that. I have, that's one's like, if not Malkovich and Oldman, I can Fair see enough. that. Yeah. Apparently, other contenders were um, Tim Robbins, Ed Harris, William Hurt, and Kevin Bacon for Cyrus the Virus. I would say yes to Ed Harris and William Hurt, no to Bacon and Robbins. Yeah, I think Robin. I love all those actors, but Harris, Harris, and her, I think, could probably pull it off. But Bacon and Robbins feels a bit. Hmm, I don't know. Feels a bit yeah. odd. Slightly left field choices, I think. Tim Robbins would be good as Garland Green. I know we're getting ahead yes. of ourselves there, but I could see him playing Garland Green, something like that. 
Yeah, if we were going to cast the other characters, then Tim Robbins as Garland Green, I think, um, would be an absolutely amazing shout. Um, see, I'd also noted here as well that again we can we can praise Malkovich all day here. Apparently, there was a lot of rewrites of his character daily on set, so he was quite frustrated often on the set as he didn't have a lot of guidance on his character or his character arc as well. So, so he kind of freestyled it. So he'd seen, so he must have had some kind of idea and thought, you know, what well, I'm just gonna have to stick with this, otherwise we're not going anywhere. Um, also, in terms of freestyling, uh, we get the next prisoner who comes on isn't introduced, but we get Dave Chappelle, the great Dave Chappelle who plays yeah, I, I always forget. I always forget he's in this film because we get three. There he is. We get three prisoners introduced. They just kind of skip past Dave Chappelle, and then we get introduced to Danny Trejo as Johnny Twenty Three. Oh God, Johnny Twenty Three! Um, oh. In a world of sick fuckers, he's the worst. <laughs> he is just the worst. He's so bad that even Cyrus the Virus verbally comes out with his disdain for him. Uh, oh, which is an amazing line delivery from 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 John Malkovich. So Johnny Twenty Three. Um, uh, I guess content warning for uh, sexual abuse here, but Johnny 23, he's called Johnny 23 because he has raped 23 women. And yes. he has, which is just, you know, abhorrent crime against humanity. And he, he's got tattoos on his arm, a heart for, quote, uh, every one of my bitches, which is, you know, just... In a, in a plane full of the most evil, depraved people. Uh, he's probably second behind someone we meet later on, but um, right now he's firmly in first. And John Malkovich just absolutely, with the burn of the century, I think, uh, I despise rapists. To me, you're somewhere between a cockroach and the white stuff that accumulates in the corner of your mouth when you're thirsty. When a guy who has murdered more people in cancer uh, despises you, that's a sign that you're you're not a good dude. No, definitely. Um, I think this is one that can't be overstated. The worst of the worst on that plane, Johnny Twenty Three. Um, as you also mentioned, uh, they call me John- Johnny Twenty Three, but that's only the ones that they know about. Oh yeah, they'd, they'd call me Johnny Six Hundred if they knew the truth. I think is his exact quote. Um, Ugh, what a oh my god, awful! I, I love I love Danny Trejo, but he plays some horrible people. Yeah, I mean, he, he's, he's such got, a nice man. He's a, he's a lovely man. He's so nice in the in the adverts for El Paso products. Um, but he's got yeah, a they're, lot- good, they're good. If you want some good fajitas, get some old El Paso. Oh, chef's kiss to those. He's got a lot of convicts on his acting repertoire. I think this one... Yeah. Uh, and well, he, did you know that he is it. the most killed actor in the history of cinema as well? He has, I would he's have been killed. Sean Bean. Yeah. yeah, no, he's way ahead of Sean Bean. He's been killed on screen more times. That's interesting. I did not... Anybody. Um, did not know that. Yeah. Like, it's ridiculous. The amount he's died is insane. I can't, I can't remember the precise number, but it's it leaves Sean Bean in the dust i just think we say sean bean because maybe he's had more high profile roles where he dies true, um, true. but when you look at the strength of schedule for danny Tr- i mean he's been in hundreds of films it feels like he's 
Well, in most of his famous roles, he doesn't really die like Spy Kids and Machete and stuff like that. I think there must be a YouTube video out there that's got a Danny Trejo kill count, surely. I would hope so. There's a Sean Bean one, which is magnificent. There's a Sean Bean one. One of my favourite Sean Bean is all the times he said bastard, mostly from oh, uh, from Sharp. In Sharp, yeah. In that lovely Sheffield accent. Bastard. Uh, I'm a Lancashire man myself, but uh, you know what? He's He's got to be the most famous Yorkshireman in the world, so shout out to him, I guess. <laughs> can appreciate a good northern bastard when I see one. I think why I thought of Sean Bean as well, um, I seem to remember a few years ago, I think it might have been a funny or die sketch he was in where it was with the whole thing is about how many times he's died in cinema and he won't take a role unless he's killed in it. Oh, yeah, I've seen that one. Yeah. <laughs> they're trying to give him a role and says like, it's like, oh, do I die in it? Do I die? Like, <laughs> no, no, you don't die. It's like, what about arrows? I get covered in poison, electrocuted. He's like, no, nothing like that. He's like, oh. Um, yeah, these days once... he's just uh, peddling O2 subscriptions and Yorkshire <laughs> Yeah. I don't know if you saw it as well. I get going on a Sean Bean tangent here, but in um, uh, the video game Hitman 2, there was like a DLC mission where he was the guy you had to kill and there was like a thousand ways you could kill him because of course there were. I've got Hitman 2 and I didn't even know that. I'll have to check that out. <laughs> That's a good game, though. Shout out Hitman 2. Uh, plays it, loved it. Um, the films, so-so, mm. again. Thankfully not on this podcast. Although Nicholas Cage is Agent 47. Who knows what, what we could have been we could have been given. In an alternative universe where Nicholas Cage played every role. Um, but, yeah, uh, we were saying about Pinball, what it seems like, an eternity ago. He doesn't get introduced, but I did... Um, See that apparently Chappelle revealed on inside the actor's studio that he improvised most of his lines. So that doesn't surprise me. Um, so if Dave Chappelle, Chappelle, one of I mean one of the great comedians of of his era, possibly of all time. I think if we want to look at the Mount Rushmore of modern comedians, he has to be on there. Yeah, which is why I love it that he shows up in random stuff. Um, you know the surprise Chappelle as I as I call it where you, you'll just watch a film and Dave Chappelle appears and you'll be like oh that's that's Dave Chappelle okay <laughs> like walking Fair through enough. the long like the, uh, walking through the long grass in Pokemon a wild Chappelle has appeared yeah it's great you never know with him and he's one of the the main sort of conspirators because we I really like this. So Cyrus gets his own little block on the plane, along with uh, along with Bing Rames' character. And Cyrus has hidden... They, they've hidden lockpicks in the calluses of their hands, yeah. which is pretty cool. So they pull those out. They escape. Um, Dave Chappelle has a much more violent way of dealing with things. He's hidden a small vial of some kind of lighter fluid and a match down his gullet, pulls it out with a string, yeah, and then lights a man on fire to create a distraction. Uh, mean, it's commitment to the plan. Yeah. <laughs> and straight away, I, I, this film doesn't pull any punches. Straight away, you're in. This escape is going down. Yeah, It's all gone to shit. 
Nicolas Cage is sitting there like, oh, for God's sake, of course. He's strapped in as like, all I had to do was get from point A to point B. It couldn't be simpler. I did the hard bit. Prison's the hard bit. This is meant to be the easy bit. <laughs> the ride home. And, the and this ride home. I think there's um, there's a quote he says like a little later on, which just kind of summarizes the film as well, when he says uh, they somehow managed to get every creep and freak in the universe onto this plane and then somehow managed to let them take over and then somehow managed to stick us right smack in the middle of it. Um, if that's not the bullet points, the way this film was sold to the uh, to the studios. Oh, yeah. That's um, how I pitch it. 100%. So Nick Done. Cage, plane, criminals. We'll throw Chappelle in there just because. Sold, blank check, name on the dotted line. But and then, then there's another element to this film, which I like, that creates a real sense of, of stakes, is Baby O, his insulin needles, which are on board, they are broken yes. during the escape. And uh, if he doesn't have them that day, uh, he will slip into a diabetic coma and possibly die. Um, so now Nick Cage, he's just he's got this real incentive beyond the incentive that he already had. He's got to save his friend. And again, I, I like that that this film doesn't go out of its way to demonize prisoners. The prisoners that it does demonize, they're just awful people. You know, they're, they're really quite terrible people, and yeah. there are some terrible people in prison. But Baby O, his cellmate, uh, he's rehabilitated. He's he's done his time. He's paid for his crime, whatever it was. I don't think we ever actually learn what it was he did, do we? Um, Not to my ever. knowledge. All I know is that he's needs insulin. He likes snowballs. He spends yeah. most of the film sick and ill and sort of out for the camera. Yeah, but he's he's a nice guy. He's nice enough that Poe befriended him and Poe. Poe describes him as only one of two men that he trusts, the other one being himself. So I think that gives you a real understanding of the relationship that they have. It might be a bit underdeveloped, but you know this isn't a buddy road movie. It's a crazy action movie. And I think that the little interactions that you do get between them, it showcases there is a, a bond. There's an affection, a real healthy male platonic friendship there. And I, I like it. It, Again, layers of humanity just being added to this crazy film. It, it keeps you a bit, it keeps you grounded. It, it gives you reason to, to root for the protagonist and to really absorb what is an insane plot. And it, it's, it's got this domino effect momentum to it as well because uh, Cyrus is, Cyrus is the, the mastermind behind the whole thing. But his plan doesn't go off without a hitch. He has to he has to improvise as, as the plan goes along. So the first sort of intangible that they don't uh, really plan for is the DEA agent who's on board. Yeah, he has to reveal himself quite quickly. Yeah, he gets um, spooked. He was not good at his job. No, he was... Um, again, I've never been a DEA agent. I can't exactly say what the training process is for such <laughs> such an occasion that you have them to be put on a designated flight full of convicts. But uh, it kicks off, prisoners start escaping, Cyrus and Diamond Dog are out of their cells. 
They manage to get the only gun on the plane, the cockpit. Uh, he gets spooked, as he said, and before you know it, he's shot, he's done, he's finished, uh, and now it falls into the lap of our hogged hero, Cameron Poe, to save the day, save his friends, uh, and also um, save Sally Bishop, the only female officer on board as well, who's eyed up by Johnny23. Um, yeah, that's... I understand why that's in the film, and I get it. Very uncomfortable, though, I think. Very um, very tough to sort of stomach. The, and I, kudos to the actors for really selling it. Um, I think that everyone in this film gives a really good performance. Um, and it, it's a great ensemble piece. But, yeah, the, the stuff with, with her and Johnny is... It's supposed to be uncomfortable, obviously, but whew, yeah, every time I watch this film, I always forget about that element of it. I think, oh Jesus, that's uh, that's a bit much. Yeah, it's quite a um, a once a uh, once a rapist, always a rapist thing. He's looking to make it Johnny Twenty Four, and he makes sort of no uh, no secret of that at the first chance he gets, but. Um, thinking one of the few redeeming elements of Cyrus is that he also aids Poe in stopping um, anything from happening to Sally. Poe's like, it's not happening, not on this flight, not ever. Cyrus is also like, yeah, we're we He says, um, what does he say? Uh, Can you fly, Johnny? Which I believe is a reference to Robocop. I don't know if that was deliberate or not. Well, seems to be a few different references to a few different films from what I've um Yeah, and he says, do, do, you, do you fly, Johnny? And then he says, he's like, if your dick um, like flies out of your pants, then you're flying off this plane. <laughs> Again, great. Li- Cyrus gets all the good lines in this film, which is interesting with, with your point of the character being constantly rewritten that there's such a consistency to his character he gets all the best lines he really dominates the space um and i think when you've got two actors like cage and malkovich who are both very big actors and very kind of alphas you know they're alpha actors for sure so i, I like that cage actually gives quite a selfless performance. He really steps back and lets the rest of the... Because this is his film. It's a Nick Cage star vehicle. Mid-90s, the peak of Cage-mania. He'd won the Oscar. He'd done The Rock. He was a big, major Hollywood player at this point. And um, he does what a lot of action stars of the time wouldn't do. He steps back and he lets the rest of the cast get their licks in, uh, do their good work, really act, and, and get to steal a few scenes. Another reason I like Cage and this film is there's a selflessness to the performance and the rest of the cast really shine as a, as a result, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I, I kind of have it as a, a running joke that in a lot of films you find there is a, a random Cage scream or just something that out of context that, that could be why, oh, this is textbook Cage. But in here, like you said, it's a very restrained performance. Um, he could easily go a few different ways with this, but um even the secondary characters they all have their moments they all make a mark everyone is written to an extent where they're memorable and just don't fall into the background which is something that's um in a lot of action films like this very 
easy to do. A lot of characters are easy to overlook, but when you get, um, as you said, a selfless actor like Cage, who is there for the craft, he wants to let his co-stars have their moments and shine as well. It just makes for a much better um, and engrossing film that I find as well. Um, you mentioned with Malkovich getting a lot of the good lines. He absolutely does. There's one he gets a little bit later when, and we're skipping ahead a bit here, when the plane has picked up some uh, other convicts and someone gets set on fire. Uh, the convict screams, sigh. Immediately he goes, Anara sets this guy on fire. Um, <laughs> and I, I was thinking, if there's... That's just though, before the finale. Oh, yeah. I was like, even though he is, um, you know, the the intelligent criminals or the intelligent sort of psychopath, whatever you want to call him. I couldn't help but think if there was one line he must have rehearsed to himself as the character, as like, one day I'm going to get the opportunity to say this and it's going to be sick. It was that one <laughs> right there. He was there in his cell just practising for years. I've got to cut him off. Yeah, this, this, you know, there's got to be some cool... And, I mean, and how me, brilliant is burns. it that... Um, that, well, yeah, it's how brilliant is it that it's a burn followed by a literal. I mean, oh, a the stars burn, aligned. Followed by a literal burn. He he was Cyrus could not believe his look. Oh, what a character! What a guy! So we we've got we've got a lot of parts at play here. Dead DEA agent, which is never good. Um. We've got the guards are strung up. People are getting shot. The, the DEA agent gets trigger happy, kills one of the prisoners. There's a big old scuffle, and they have to make a landing at Carson City because they're not all the prisoners are due for the same location. I think six of them have to get off at Carson City, and yes. there is there is a, there is an issue because the six that are getting off are all white. They do not have enough white people on board. It's a very, um, very diverse cast, this. There's kind of a good mix of white, black, and uh, Latino actors on the plane. It's a yeah. nice, diverse mix. And, uh, yeah, they have to land in Carson City during a sandstorm and dress up as guards cover everyone up, do, do this trade-off, and Cameron Poe has an opportunity to let the authorities know that something is going wrong. And it, it, it kind of kicks the main conflict of the plot in, into motion with the authorities finding out about the convicts on board. And, and again... Cyrus lays out this plan, but it's it's far from a smooth one. And there's, at the same time, the, the Larkin, Vince Larkin, is in Cyrus's prison cell. There's some really good cross-cutting between the two sequences where they're finding in Cyrus's prison cell, like, the anarchist cookbook and his... Yeah, it seemed like a it's, real escape room of, of bits and pieces as yeah. he's, he's putting together the... Uh... They're putting stuff out, doing clues. I think that um, I was watching it and just thinking like, wow, I got a group of friends together and we, we could uh, pay 30 quid and do this for a, for a 
team building yeah. exercise. If, if there was going to be a Con Air escape room, it would be Cyrus's cell, the plane probably as well. Um, a Las Vegas casino <laughs> for, for all we know. But like, we get a good measure of sort of, um, you know, Larkin smarts as well here. He managed to put the pieces together. There's a picture of the Last Supper with the eye holes cut out, puts it over some text and figures out that there's a, a plan in motion that Cyrus has put together. Uh, at the same time, Cameron Poe finds the tape recorder on the dead DEA agent's body and he manages to um, somehow perfectly or accidentally perfectly roll that uh, reel of film out that another agent picks it up. Um, so both on both sides of the, uh, of, of the cuts and the edits, um, Cage manages to communicate to the officers outside and Larkin also figures out that something's up with the flight. Um, there's a plan afoot here. Um, and then also uh, Cyrus had managed to plant a bomb in his room as well. Just- yeah, there's, this is one of the effects that hasn't aged brilliantly, actually. Uh, the guards open the bomb up and it explodes and Cusack is walking away from the cell. Really bad CGI door getting blown off its hinges. <laughs> Just flies past him. And fly, flies past Cusack and uh, that got a laugh out of me. I, I'm down for a bit of bad 90s CGI. It's always fun for me. I mean, my my joy of that scene came mostly with uh, Larkin very clearly telling the two or three guards, do not touch a thing in this room. Immediately they opened a tin box explosion. A tin um, box that says do not open on it. So... <laughs> So doubly so, they're instructed. Well, they were yeah, warned. I, and I, yeah, I, yeah. I don't, I, it's hard to feel bad for them. Um, I don't think they deserve to die, but you reap what you sow, I suppose. I think there just had to be a thing with with action films where you have to meet a certain quota of explosions, and like uh, we've got one more to put in. Let's just throw it in. Cyrus's cell. Um, how he got all those components to chemically craft a bomb? Maybe this is what he was learning, and he got his extra. Well, he uh, had the he had again great production design. Uh, there was a copy of the Anarchist's cookbook. Yes, in his yes. cell, which obviously is full of instructions on how to how to do improvised homemade bombs. So must have used that um, using those prison funds to get those great bits great attention to detail. Like I said, and this this film it. it I was looking at some contemporary reviews of it at the time, and I feel people have been too harsh on this film. It's really solidly put together. Just outside of the the elements that everyone praises, like the action and the the cast, Mm. on a technical level, some really good filmmaking going on here. And I I think that it's... I think the cult following it's got is well-earned, and I don't think it, it... it's one of those films where, in my head, I think to myself, oh, yeah, I enjoy it as a nice kind of ironic, trashy 90s film. But much like The Rock and much like Face Off, you go back and watch it and you think, actually, no, they really put a lot of thought and effort into this. This film was made with love and care and skill. There's a lot of skilled people working on this. And speaking of skilled people, we meet... Uh, possibly the most memorable character in the film uh, when they're doing this prisoner trade-off. Uh, Garland Green, played by yes. another one of my favourite actors and a very talented man, Steve Buscemi, who 
along with Cage, great run in the 90s. This, Fargo, Reservoir Dogs, really solid run in the 90s for for Steve Buscemi. And we meet Garland Green. He's coming off the plane. This was that era where Silence of the Lambs parodies weren't played out yet because the film was still quite recent. He yes. gets a very, very Hannibal Lecter-esque. Oh, yeah, it's got it's got the, the leather face mask on. He's been wheeled in. Um, he's all constrained. Um, they make no mistake in pointing out that uh, Garland Green is a, a big league serial killer feared by many, many inmates, not a man to be messed with. I sort of couldn't help but look, obviously looking at a younger Buscemi when he had sort of the, the sweeping grey hair, he looks a little bit to me like a uh, like how Bill Skarsgård looks now. It's sort of similar facial features. Like if they were going to remake it. Odd, odd looking dudes, for sure. Like yeah. striking facial features. Yeah. Stellan Skarsgård is... Not Stellan Skarsgård, Bill Skarsgård. Uh, that's his father. Wonderful actor. Shout out, Stellan Skarsgård. Yeah, I think Bill Skarsgård, uh, he's... Him and Buscemi, they do have that, that distinct look to them. And I, I think it really helped. Like you say, I'm not surprised that Steve Buscemi was, was locked in for this role. I, I feel like this is the kind of film where when they looked through the cast shortlist and they, they saw Buscemi with this, this character, the conversation was very short. I think it was just, yeah, he's, he's the guy. He's got to be... Did, he hadn't done Fargo yet, but he, he was established. You know, he'd done Reservoir Dogs. He he was on the scene. And um, what a real, quite horrifying performance, which is odd because he doesn't, he doesn't do anything overtly evil in this film, which I think is to the film's benefit. I think, I think the mystery of the character really adds to it. And he's yeah. obviously, he's a Jeffrey Dahmer type. He's a Ted Bundy type. You know, he's one of these, he's not like Cyrus. Cyrus is someone who just kills people. And that's, that's kind of it. You know, shoot him in the head, bash the heads in with a hammer, whatever. Kills, moves on. You know, Buscemi is a guy who gets, uh, he gets this sick, twisted sort of sexual pleasure out of what he does. You know, he describes in one scene where he, uh, wore a girl's head as a hat as he drove through <laughs> there's a strong implication there that he might be a child killer slash rapist maybe it's yeah there's I'm... a lot of context clues to that um great another great line when Galen green gets on board um baby o says uh, he makes the Marson fam- manson family look like the partridge family which <laughs> <laughs> got a laugh out of me that was a that was a good little line there but yeah, it tells yeah. you what he's about, establishes the character really well, which this film, as I've said, is, is so wonderful at. Cyrus says, I'm a big fan of your work. And yeah, he just gets put in his own little cell. He's locked in place, wearing this mask. There's this really great uh, breathing effect over it. And I think this film was nominated for, uh, for its sound. I could be wrong, but I think he got an Oscar nod, a couple of Oscar nods. 
Yeah, it was best song, um, which that is a story in of itself, which uh, should I remember, we'll, we'll talk about stuff a little later on. I also got a Razzie nomination. It got a... Um, it got nominated. Won, uh, a Golden Raspberry, and the yeah. name of the award, um, genuinely incredible, worst reckless disregard for human life and public property that it won. Um Again, yeah. incredible. If it was going to win the any award, itself was also nominated for a Razzie, which I, I believe it was. I think it was nominated for an Oscar and a Razzie, which yeah, um, very best rare. original song at the. Yeah, I, I, very rare that a film gets nominated for a Razzie in, br- and an Oscar in the same category. This, the song itself really weird, and going on a bit of a tangent here. So it's how do I live, um, which was. By Leanne Rhymes, um, her version spent like half a year in the UK charts. The eighth best-selling single of '98 is a result. Um, I think they said as of August in 2014, it sold well over 700,000 copies alone in the UK. Probably more by now. Um, set records on the US Billboard Hot 100, number four on the Billboard's all-time top 100. If that's still the case, I'm not sure. But confusingly. On the day that song was released, also released was the cover by Trisha Yearwood, which ended up in Con Air. Um, apparently, <laughs> touch, apparently, Touchstone Pictures felt uh, Leanne Rhymes was uh, too young to be singing about the context of the song. Her voice was too much of a pop sound. She was 14 at the time. Um, so they went with Yearwood because she had a throatier, more country vibe. Um, apparently, which, Trisha Yearwood which was does work because it's oh, about people from Alabama. Well, absolutely, we get a lot of the Alabama context, Sweet Home Alabama, as well. Um, but I found interestingly and sadly, uh, neither version of the song made it to the Con Air soundtrack after all of that that they went through, as well. So, <laughs> but just as much oh. on the song. Um, as there was with anything else <laughs> it's a wonderful it really is, and there's so many of those stories just going through all this to do a thing and then the thing doesn't get done it it makes you wonder how many unfulfilled people there are in Hollywood that, that did a really good job at something and then no one ever got to hear about it oh absolutely apparently there was something with one of the sound producers or music producers as well. I'm just going to see if I can find it, but um, he still got credited for the film, but apparently they had to leave like halfway through to then go and work on a speed two of all things. Um, wow. So what a story. There's, there's slightly more to it, but going from Con Air, one of the biggest films of 97 to the uh, panned speed two, um, what a twist. What a turn for the books. You know what? Bashemi might have done Fargo at this point. Was Fargo 96? It was definitely around that time. Let's have a quick might look have here. Done Fargo at this point, actually. In which case, I retract my earliest statement. Uh, 96, according to a very quick <laughs> Google search. There you go. Okay. Wow. Uh, so Bashemi was established at this point. On the board. I think the last wow. time. Shemi and Cage were in a film together with Zanderley, which is a, a few years earlier. Uh, Shemi had a very bit part as a bin man who just appeared in scenes and said words. 
Oh yeah, um, that's the one where Cage covers himself in paint. Because uh, himself in paint does a a lot of raw dogging in this film, uh, <laughs> which is um, thankfully absent from this film. Unfortunately absent, but an implied raw dog is a raw dog all the same. as his Raw dog is cage hog. Raw dog, cage hog, keep on rocking. That's all we say. Um, but as you were saying, we get the new convicts. Uh, we get the drug kingpin, Sindino, um, who's part of Cyrus the Virus's plan. They are intending to make a plane switch at Lerner Airport um, with his crew and sort of get out of Dodge. We get uh, MC Gainey, new pilot, Swamp Thing. Um, I like him. I like him. He's, he's, he's one of the more cheerier prisoners, a bit more um, high octane. He wears he a helmet. A That's a great, you know, he has a very important job. So he's very into it. I like it. And I like oh, it. They leave Pinball behind. Uh, he, yes. He's getting rid of the transponder uh, and too busy uh, flirting with a woman that he's. He said, with the uh, guard, I think. There's a guard in a base that a, a female guard yeah. he's flirting with. He says the line, "You're the you're the most beautiful woman I've seen in five to ten. Um, <laughs> but then, correct. Uh, I mean, corrections. That's another one. <laughs> now that you um, mention it, I totally believe that Dave Chappelle ad libbed his dialogue. I think it's like you get some people on your film, let them play to their strengths. Absolutely. Yeah. So he's um, planting the transponder on a civilian aircraft. To throw um, him off the sense. But he gets left behind. And left he, behind in the sandstorm. Yeah, he runs he runs after them. They they waste a copper. So they find the, the tape recorder, they work out what's going on. And Cyrus just shoots a cop straight up in the face. He says, he says, A cab motherfucker, shoots him in the face, <laughs> gets on the Gets on the plane. Gets uh, out the dodge. Yeah. On the way to learn it. They're like, oh, what's going on? No. <laughs> he gets uh, um, wow. some interaction in the cockpit with um, the DA agent and Larkin. Uh, just kind of boasts about the dead undercover agent with the song. Uh, yeah. uh, oh. Nothing makes me sadder than the agent lost his bladder in the airplane. And then uh, Col Meany just freaks out. He's just there like, how dare you? I'm gonna, I'm gonna rip your goddamn head. You're gonna be begging for the electric chair when I'm done with you. That's that's the the one you. <laughs> yeah, and Cyrus just goes, I don't like it. him. If he talks again, I'm hanging up. It's, it's just he puts his foot down. He's like, yeah, um, I'm not doing this with him, Larkin. You seem all right. Let's. I'll talk to you. Um, oh, it's he, a great little scene. Um. Now, they sort of figure out here as well um, that Poe is on the plane. They look at his rap sheet and say, look, he's just the case of a man who is wrong place, wrong time throughout his life. He's not a bad guy. Uh, Larkin goes to bat for him pretty quickly, um, I think it's fair to say. Um, and they figure out here that they can use Poe to their advantage to help bring uh, the plane down and get the convicts as well. So even they haven't met um, Larkin, is putting two and two together. He's the only level-headed agent. They, everyone else is very emotional. They're like, what, we've got to shoot this thing down. It's like, look, we've got oh, innocent Paul, people on that Paul plane. Meany wants to shoot this thing down bad. He and, needs um, it. 
and Larkins is like, oh, he, you know, he he accidentally killed a guy defending his wife. Could have been me. Could have been you. He's like, don't compare me to those animals. <laughs> Cole he, uh, doesn't want to hear it. He just is the most hard-assed, right-wing, pro-cop, anti-prisoner guy, and it's brilliant. Like he he he's just the vein on his forehead. He looks like he's going to explode at any point. Outstanding. Yeah, what you, we see early when he's introduced, he's got the sports car, the midlife crisis sports car. He's parking in disabled spots. This oh, guy, so you, know, you know, he's an a hole before he's even spoke. This guy does not give a shit. Um, all he cares about, he doesn't care that this is this is Larkin's jurisdiction. The plane is Larkin's responsibility. He wants explosions. Little does he know, he's going to get them. Uh, but just not in the way that he envisioned. Um, so now we've got Swamp Thing uh, piloting the plane. Um, he says, we're supposed to be traveling at 225 miles an hour. We're going at 208. The landing gear's not come up. So uh, even though it's Diamond Dog's responsibility, he delegates to Poe and they find the body of Pinball stuck in the landing gear. Uh, he nearly made it. He nearly made it. A for effort, F for execution, um, RIP pinball. Um, but here we get some Nick Cage, Cameron Poe, big brain, big hog planning. Uh, it just happens to be a marker pen in pinball's uh, pants. Stroke a look. Writes a message on there. Says this is where the plane's going. And... Um, Yeats pinball's body out oh, of the plane. A brilliant bit. But you're talking about side characters that, like Coen Brothers characters who are barely in it that you remember. There's this couple, they're in their car, a bird shits on their window. <laughs> Husband's just like, oh, you just, we just got the thing waxed every bloody time. He gets his Kleenex out, he's trying to wipe the bird shit off the windshield. Traffic starts. His wife's like, we're holding up traffic. Oh, no. Start to drive. Dave Chappelle's body <laughs> flies out of the air. Suddenly, a Chappelle appears. Crashes. The surprise Chappelle crashes into their car. There's a there's not a quite a pileup, but there's a bit of a, a fracas. You know, the cars are just going boom, boom. A bit like a pinball table, actually. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, on the shirt, it's got Vin- Vince Larkin. It's got the uh, the airfield they're going to, so they know who to contact, what to tell him. Uh, the chase is on, uh, so to speak. Well, yeah, body down, message on the body, mild car crash, just another day in 2020, the way it came across to me at the moment. It wouldn't be out of place this year. Um, but eventually the message gets back to Larkin. Um the other DEA agents are following the transponder that Pinball put on the oh God, it's passenger brilliant. plane. They, uh, they've got like attack choppers and everything, and they're just going. It's like I think it's a couple of tourists just on like a, promise the best day of their lives. Yeah, it's flying over the Nevada desert through a mountain wreck, through a cliff range. Even looks like great fun. I'd love to give that a go, but uh, <laughs> maybe yeah, less intense circumstances. Yeah. Yeah, so then Larkin finds out he can get to the airfield if he if he just floors it. But he needs a fast car, Daryl. Where's he going to get a fast car from? 
I wonder. Uh, in a disabled parking spot outside. That's where he's going to get it. Um, <laughs> Next call, Meanie's car. Oh. Floors it in Meanie's car. Uh, gets to the airfield, Lerner airfield, just as they um, land as well. A uh, bit of a rough landing. Almost end up crashing into a giant propane tank. Um, so not the easiest um, sort of landing there. Uh, but just before that, I sort of skipped ahead a bit here, we get the bunny quote as well. Um, when Billy Bedlam, he's sort of catching on to Poe. He's like, well, I was in the same cell block as you. I don't remember you being at the north block, but Poe's like, look, there was 160 guys in that cell block. There was 159 of them I didn't want to know, so I don't know who you are either. Um, but eventually... Bedlam goes into the uh, underbelly of the plane through the personal belongings, finds Poe's parole letter and figures out um, he's not who he seems to be. And as he's looking through the stuff, we get, of course, the quote of Conair, put the money back in the box. Um, I think some would say one of the standout non-rage quotes of Cage's career um, and then they, I shouldn't have giggled, but they have to crouch run at each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they have to crouch run at each other. Uh, then they tangle. And eventually there's a bit of metal in the, in the ruckus that comes loose. Uh, Bedlam is kicked and impaled on there, killing him. And Poe says, why couldn't you just put the bunny back in the box? Um, the fact wonderful. that that bunny was only in the film at Cage's behest. So that line, that line wouldn't exist without Nicolas Cage. He brought that to the table. Any other actor, no bunny, no iconic. This film would not have survived as long as it has, I don't think. It's, it, it all comes be. together. No. Yeah, this is what I mean. He puts this thought into films, he fleshes them out, and you can overlook a thing like a bunny, but Nick Cage made it happen. Uh, and that's why he is the golden hogger of cinema. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I'll say it till my dying breath. I'll say it as my my final words, like, oh, uh, Dara, what, what is the one you want to remember by, like, Nicolas Cage is God. And then I flatline, I'm out. And they're like, yeah, that sounds like the kind of thing that you would have said. Um, so what I sort of liked here, and the film... Uh, we get sort of the backstory for this, obviously at the start of the film, but when he comes back up to sit next to Baby Yo, you can see that he's obviously shook about taking another life by accident. He didn't want to kill this guy. He doesn't... He's just like really good people. at it. He's really good at killing people. <laughs> it just turns out it's uh, something he's actually really good at. What an um, awful thing to be great at. <laughs> like an accidentally brilliant at taking lives. <laughs> um so he, he sort of sits with this decision um, of what he's just had to do here, um, like another mindless death, but he's kind of loosely consoled um, by Green, um, who sort of says to him, um, I think it's one of the, the different sort of prophetic things he says. He does make one allusion to like uh, Bundy and Dharma saying that they why they killed and uh, the reasons that they killed for as well. But Poe makes it very clear that like, look, me and you, we are nothing alike each other. We are not the same people. 
Um, but one of Green's quotes earlier, I think when they get away with the, the new prisoners a bit earlier in the film, he's like, defying irony, a bunch of idiots dancing on a plane to a song made famous to a band that died in a plane crash. Um, the Leonard Skinner's Sweet Home Alabama. Um, I think only actually three people died in the crash, but the rest were injured. So, I mean, if that's not going to be, I'll put it out there, that's not the one thing I'm pointing out as a my issue with this film. If we're going to talk about real life deaths, let's let's get it right, Steve Buscemi. Um, but then they they have the rough landing at Lerner, nearly blow up. Um, I find it unintentionally hilarious that. Larkin almost gets flattened by the plane twice. He's just he's just trying to get a, an outside view of the plane. Ends up in the um, little barn, but um, at the same time, as we said earlier, Babio's lack of insulin has now put him in a really bad way. Poe's denim shirt comes off. We're now down to the iconic denim uh, denim trown white vest combo. I was raging slightly. I'm going to put that out there. I'm not afraid to say that. Um, it made me want to sort of grow my hair out and just have that look myself, but I'm too too slim of a man, unfortunately, to uh, to have that going on there. Um, but Cyrus's plan, uh, looking to come a bit more into motion here, the planning to switch over Cyrus... Um, is about to oversee Diamond Dog killing the three prison guards that they've still got. But good guy Poe says, look, if you kill these three, we've got no leverage, then they'll just shoot us on sight. Um, as this is happening, uh, Johnny 23 spots the National Guard incoming. So now we're building towards the um, big final set pieces, the explosive action packs. Uh, shootout between guards versus the American forces. Um, and at the same time, and obviously I know the prisoners aren't keeping tabs on each other, but Green wanders off here and he finds, just happens to find a caravan park and has that interaction, um, oh. the little tea party interaction with that little girl. The scene has oh, got the whole world in his hands. Okay, yeah, right. Um, I know the... I know how this scene plays out, but it's profoundly uncomfortable to watch. I mean, I mean, this is what I was saying earlier about the implication of of what he does. They never outright say that he's a paedophile or, mm. or that he's a child killer. It's, it's never stated. But there is a heavy, heavy implication. And when he just... He's sitting there with this girl... And they're playing goals and they sing a song that, you know, for, for the wrestling fans out there, which obviously we, we both are, that, that mm -hmm. Bray Wyatt has made even more creepy than it already was. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, thanks to Bray Wyatt. I can't hear that song in, in the same way again. Um, if you're not a wrestling fan, uh, Bray Wyatt is a very strange man who sings that song and uh, it's very uncomfortable. And... I don't. I get. I get why this scene's there. Is they wanted to remove Garland Green from the action sequence because he's not. He's not that kind of character. Steve Buscemi with a big gun shooting people would look ridiculous. Very jarring. Uh, it would take me out of it completely. So I, I understand why this was there. But my God, just this. 
this lingering feeling that he's going to butcher a child, even though he doesn't, uh, spoiler alert or whatever, he doesn't do it. But, oh, God. Every time I watch this film, I remember this scene and I think, oh, this is... This is tough to watch. Yeah, every time that scene comes on, I still think that he's going to do it, even though I know that he doesn't. Um, He takes a candle. Testament to to the the filmmakers and and the actors to really sort of create that tension, I suppose. It's sort of even when you get a little bit later when the little girl just appears and she's absolutely fine. There's still part of me thinking... Oh, thank God. It's a sigh of relief, but still part of me thinking, you should be dead, question mark. It's like, I mean, this slight disbelief that she's fine, because as you said, it's such a heavy implication that um, he has in some way abused children, even though it's never said. Um, And he said, I I drove through towns with a girl's head as a hat. And then there's just so much there that you just don't know what his what his deal is. Um, he's just a guy that walked away on a plane, got a candle through his troubles. Um, and then you don't see him again until sort of the very last scene of the film. So it's a sort of creepy character, these weird lines that you would expect to see as some kind of a main villain character in like a Far Cry game or something. Um, so. Apparently, this that scene where they sit together and have the little tea party was a reference to the the Frankenstein film, where the character Frankenstein did the same thing in one. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, have so you I seen the original, the original Frankenstein? Uh, I recently came into purchase of um, a Blu-ray set of the, the the original Universal Horror Monster classics, which I haven't had a chance to sit down and watch yet, but. Um, so it's interesting to read about this. My assumption without seeing the scene, I could be wrong here, uh, is, is in some way this interaction sort of humanises him or something? Yeah, he... Um, the kid's not not afraid of him and they, they have a nice sort of playful interaction. But through, um, through circumstances and through miscommunication, the child ends up... Uh, drowning and dying um, and, and that is why the monster is hunted down that's why the villagers go after him so I, I can I can see the influence in this scene I suppose the key difference is that Frankenstein's monster inherently is not evil yeah uh, he's he's um, you know he's a science experiment that, that got free he's not a bad dude Whereas Gallon Green, um, it, it, it's so strange. And I love this film. And I think this might be my only real gripe with it, is that it really goes out of its way. And I, I understand subversion of expectations, but it really goes out of its way to humanise this man who, if he existed in the real world, I would want to see executed for for crimes against humanity for, for there's just no place in a civilized world for someone like like a garland green and it's very uncomfortable for me to watch him be portrayed as like oh you know he's just a bit misunderstood it's like no he 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 is so evil that in a plane full of serial killers and serial rapists they all look at him 
with fear. Yeah. <laughs> That's how evil this... His crimes are so unspeakable that you don't even actually hear what they are. Like, And it's very straight... I, I, great character, great acting from Buscemi, but the way he's portrayed, I think, is a bit questionable, personally. Yeah, it's... A, a strange portrayal, strange interaction, and as I mentioned, a strange ending for him. Because um, after he sort of disappears, like I said, you don't see him until the very last scene of the film where he's gambling in a casino and having a lovely time. So apparently, yeah, he, he's suddenly reformed. Like, what? <laughs> he's going he's gonna to do a lot of horrible things. I don't know why this is being played off as a... It's the ending of the film, isn't it? Isn't it the final scene? Isn't it the final shot for the film? <laughs> yeah, I mean, after we get sort of like the fade out with, um, and obviously jumping ahead again, sort of caged his family, we then get the scene of him just at the at like the roulette he's table. He's shooting crap. He's shooting crap. Yeah, and he's just raking in these he chips. He's handed a cocktail. He's having a whale at the time. Like, whoa. Like, he got the. the he- a, a weirdly nice ending for an abhorrent character, which yeah, he, he belongs on death row. I don't, I don't know what he's doing there. Very, very odd. And you would have thought that the cops would have put out a, an alert for a very dangerous person who escaped from this plane, um, but they clearly didn't do it. That was their prerogative not to do it. I think they're a bit busy cleaning up after the finale. Um, but sort of speaking of which. Um, we, we've got now uh, Poe, he's, we finally get the first interaction between Poe and Larkin. Poe is looking for needles so Baby O can get his insulin. He is accosted by three of Sindino's gang who are waiting to pick them up, but between him and Larkin, they take them out. To get him on side, Larkin tells Poe that he's spoken with his wife and daughter to win, uh, sort of win his trust, but Poe says that the reason he's not going to just run away, as he can do, is because, um, well, Baby O needs his help. And he says, and I quote, he's going to save the fucking day. Uh, it seemed to be at this point as well. Now, you mentioned earlier that uh, Malkovich was getting a lot of the memorable lines. It's the second half of the film where I noticed that Cameron Pope is getting more memorable lines like this. Um, so he's going to save the fucking day. Um, a little bit later, when sort of, the plane has taken off again. You've got um, Cormaloy's car dangling from a rope and he's just casually like, on any other day, that might seem strange. Um, <laughs> which was just brilliant. Um, yeah. But yeah, as we mentioned, this is where Sai sets Indiana on fire because he attempts to get the fuck out of there. He's intercepted by Larkin, which no one else seems to notice. Um, Poe is slow-mo running from explosions, dives expertly through a window. Um, so apparently Cage did pretty much all of his own stunts on this one as well. So yeah, again, going the whole hog. Um, I don't know if this is one of those things was like proving himself as the right choice when you're up against initial people like Schwarzenegger and Stallone. He's like, look, I'm here to do it. You've made the right choice. So let's get into this. Um, and then the... All the guards managed to find a lot of weapons um, because if they didn't, then it wouldn't make a very interesting final action set piece. But Cyrus comes up with a plan to sort of take out the National Guard. Says, we'll take out the one at the rear, take out the one at the front. Then all the guards will be pinned in. 
um, when he's drawing this idea in the sand, one of the convicts is like points to a stone and he's like, what's that? Cyrus goes, that's just a rock. Um, still showing that he's still the brains of the operation. Um, oh. <laughs> so it's just it's still getting these lovely lines as we go towards like, you know, the last sort of half an hour here. Um, this, this is where the budget was saved back. I absolutely. I... I do want to know the percentage of that $75 million that was spent on this this finale. Because this third act is just... It's been quite... The action's been quite muted at this point and held back. It's more in line with like a thriller at this point. But, oh my God. All the guns. All the explosions. All the, all the set pieces. It's a sight to behold, and it's really <laughs> you love some to see great, it. some great action filmmaking, really, because we've got Larkin is uh, he's convened with the National Guard. They're moving in, but Cyrus and his crew—they've finally found the weapons cache on the plane, so they're ready for a real sort of ground war. And then, caught in the middle, you've got Larkin and Poe, who have a nice—they uh, meet each other. They have a nice little interaction where. Poe still doesn't quite trust Larkin entirely because why would he? But there's a mutual understanding there. And um, <laughs> uh, the escape that leads to the wonderful Sayonara line where um, there's the double cross and he's got his, his crew, the, 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 the drugs gang, they're getting away on a jet. Larkin drops a plane on the jet. It crashes into a, a gas station. And uh, yeah, Cyrus just chucks a cigarette and lights all the high hell. And it, it really just sets into action this, this incredible uh, shootout, really, where you've got Larkin is in uh, like a bulldozer providing cover for the guards. But then all the prisoners there... They're hidden amongst the wreckage of, of, of the airfield, and it's very reminiscent of uh, very similar style of filmmaking for a lot of Vietnam War films, actually, where you've got this big American military force that are just going in as one big unit, and then a sort of ragtag group who uh, are hiding in and amongst the thrush with their weapons. And it creates this level playing field. It really quite a great way to set up a a believable battle between these two sides. And you know, Poe, he's he's just trying his best. You know, like you said, he's trying to get that insulin. He's trying to uh, just just trying to resolve this insane situation that's got way out of hand and. The, the, the ultimate game plan for Cyrus and his crew, obviously, is they've got all these propane tanks and they've, they've loosened them all, the gas is leaking out and they're, they're, they're luring the National Guard into a trap. They're going to blow them to high hell. And it's, it's a quick, rapid, cathartic burst of action that I, I, I really... I really enjoy and it's it's built up to this is a film that 
spends a lot of time laying the groundwork and then you finally get to see this big huge action sequence and what's interesting about it is that Nicolas Cage is has quite a quite a passive presence in it he's not He's not running into the fray, dual-wheeling machine guns, gunning people down at, at all. Like he, he's he's trying to help his friend. He, he's trying to yeah. He's true to himself, and again, it sets Cameron Poe apart. I, I think had like a Schwarzenegger been in this film, he probably would have seen to it that in this scene, he gets like a big gun, and he's cracking off one-liners and he's shooting people in the face. Very different film, I think. Um, yeah. The fact that Poe is not the big action star in, in this scene, it it's, it's plays out... I think realistic's the wrong word because nothing about this film is realistic. But uh, it plays out in, in a manner where actually, amongst all the chaos, the protagonist, he's not stopping to be an action star. He's, he's trying to get his job done. Everything he does is to work towards his ultimate goal, that's to save his friend, to get home to his family, and to make sure that these convicts are punished for what they've done. And it's a great—it's a great way to to stage an action sequence, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Like you say, that the the main convicts convict, well, the conflict of the convicts going on—that's not his primary concern. He's off on his own mission, and that's to save his friend. Um, he doesn't want to get involved. Doesn't necessarily need to get involved. Um, it's not to say that he's not running away from explosions, um, as there are plenty of them. He's diving through windows, um, but he's just trying to get to his friend. Um, so at the same time as that's all kicking off, Johnny 23 has used this madness to get back to Sally, who's been handcuffed aboard the jailbird. Um, oh, yeah. As, yeah. He, as he goes to pounce on her, though, we do get a sudden cage with the interception bouncing his head off of the uh, the metal cage with don't treat women like that i think the great defender the chivalry oh yeah um, feminist icon love to see it. Right there. outstanding stuff and then sally gets her licking too she kicks johnny 23 right in the chest um I, I like her as a character because she's not just uh just a victim for these depraved men you know she gets she has her agency and, you know, she kicks Johnny 23 in the chest. She spits on him. Um, and a bit later on, she even knocks Cyrus out, which which is pretty badass, really. Like, she gets to knock yeah. out the main film. That's pretty cool. Um, she gives uh, Poe some motivation earlier in the film. He's very happily showing his picture of his daughter to the guards. And she's like, that there is your walking, talking motivation to go home and, you know, uh, be straight and stay out of jail so she's uh one i think the only guard the other of the rest of them as a lot of guards in these type of films can be slightly dickish she's the only one with any uh, any semblance of humanity um compared to the rest of them but like you say she's she's not just a means to an end for the convicts uh, she has her agency she can hold her own she she's knocking people out she's kicking rapists and i'm fucking here for it I guess my only, uh, I, I do wish Johnny 23 had just been killed. <laughs> That's my one desire. Just, I know that it's not Poe's aim in life, but oh, video's been beaten to death. That would have been great. Yeah. Oh, I, I mean, he gets 
um, as fitting an end for his character as he's going to get. They do handcuff him up to sort of take him out of the uh, the the uh, situation there, but um, eventually, after all the calamity and the explosion sort of uh, die down and the convicts escape, they've got the plane back in the air. Cyrus is then addressing the convicts. It's like, look, someone alerted the authorities, someone killed Billy Bedlam, someone tied a rope to the plane to try and stop it. Uh, Poe goes to own up, but Baby O takes the rap. Now fully insulins and sort of back in the game, immediately gets a uh, bullet to the gut for his troubles. Um, oh, poor Baby O. Oh, he cannot catch a bloody break. I mean, he had a nice snowball at the start of the film. The rest of the film, he's not had a good time at all. And now he's got a, uh, a bullet in the gut. Uh, Cyrus did not even want to hear him out. It's like, well, you did it. Bang. We're taking care of it. I've got no time um, for this mutiny aboard my vessel. Um, but as this is going on, um, Cyrus has got his gun to the bunny and he's like, he's going to shoot the bunny, um, which is one of the most tense hostage parts of this film because you want the bunny to make it. The bunny's been through a lot. And then the attack chopper shows up, finally the DEA, DEA agents, have, uh, they're on the scene. They are desperate to shoot it down. Um, but Larkin's begging them not to do it. Poe tells Baby O that he's going to show him that God does exist. Spoiler, it's Nicolas Cage. Um, and incredibly, as Poe goes into full action mode now, he's taken out some of the other convicts. He takes a bullet straight to the left arm, doesn't flinch. The power no, shit like The Undertaker. Fantastic. Absolutely. Just no soul that shit like you've never seen. Um, he slaps the uh, effeminate prisoner who I think character name was Sally Doesn't Dance or Sally No Dance. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, that, I think it's Sally Something Dance, Sally No Dance. Maybe, yeah, I saw it in the credits, but I don't know if the character actually gets named in the film. Uh, they're one of the prisoners that comes on at the exchange, find themselves a lovely blue dress that they're very happy to wear, but Cyrus just, <laughs> I found it funny earlier. Um, Sally was asking the character, uh, Cyrus like, well, what should I do? He's like, well, if anyone comes along, you scratch their eyes out. And it's like, yep, I can do that. Um, but gets absolutely uh, full palm slapped and taken out by Cage. But then Poe manages to get on the um, jailbird comms and along with Larkin, they convince Malloy to hold fire on rocketing the plane, uh, which Malloy reluctantly agrees to because they seem to think, right, well, maybe we've got a chance to um, take this thing down from the inside. You kind of think with the destruction that followed, maybe it would have been better that the plane just got shot down because uh, now, yeah. uh, now we end up in Las Vegas, crash um, the jailbird crash landing on the Vegas Strip, uh, she's like, honeymoon in Vegas, leaving Las Vegas, now Con Air. Cage has gravitated to the Las Vegas Strip. Um, Swamp Thing crashed. Is, is there a city, though, that, that sums up Nicolas Cage more than the, the excess and the craziness and the bright lights of Vegas? I feel like the two go hand in hand in, in many ways. I feel like spiritually, there is absolutely a connection there. Um, maybe Las Vegas 
um, is Cage City. Maybe that's where it was always destined to be. be. Um, then we get like a lot, a lot now of like big budget um, crashing. Uh, the plane wings go out, the engines go out. It smashes into a casino, um, which I found in my searches as well. Apparently, that was a real casino that they got to destroy. Uh, it was the Sands Hotel, due to be demolished, but the filmmakers persuaded them to hold off for a few weeks. Um, and then basically said, we're going to help you with the destruction. We're just going to use a plane to do it. Um, thankfully, they got the take that they needed um, as the it's taken down. A lot of other things like the um, big guitar uh, is just uh, models that were broken as well. But uh, big sequence, a lot of destruction. Johnny 23 dies in the crash. His arm comes off. Uh, still in the handcuffs, just dangling from the cage. Uh, is it a fitting end? Did he deserve worse? Probably. But I'm thinking at this point, oh, yeah. take what we can get. Um, so then despite all the wreckage and all the gathering crowds and authorities, Larkin and Poe notice Cyrus Swamp thing and Diamond Dog escaping in a fire truck leads to a chase on motorbikes, the big hog riding the big hog. Um, big action scene. Uh, Cyrus is spraying a cop down with a hose, which I think is probably a metaphor for Cage's hog. Um, I only studied media in sixth form for two years and I got my C grade. That's all I'm saying. I've, I've, I can put two and two together when Cage's hog is concerned. Um, D-Dog gets a motorbike to the face and explodes. <laughs> Um, he's out of there. Poe and Larkin make it on the truck. Poe impales Cyrus's leg with a stick. They're fighting on top. Larkin's trying to get into the driver's seat where Swamp Thing is. Uh, manages to stick the uh, fire hose through a hole in there and just drowns him out. Uh, yeah, but- it's it's a creative way to dispose of a villain, I must say. So if I can't get you out, I'll drown you. So uh, yeah. points for creativity. Don't, don't fuck with US Marshals. That's, that's the lesson I learned. There's uh, nothing more dangerous than a US Marshal in sandals. And he's, uh, he's, got, the, uh, he's got the power. He's got the, uh, the training to take care of himself. Um, Poe manages to handcuff Cyrus to the ladder on top of the fire truck. Um, but then... It crashes, the handcuff connects, he goes through like a bridge, goes through power lines. Ridiculous. Oh my God, it's like a Rube Goldberg machine. It's incredible. Just one thing leads to another, through a bridge, through power lines. Then he ends up perfectly placed underneath a pile driver that crushes his skull. (laughs) Um, Oh my God. there's There's a lot of things, the way the film has been set up, that you were willing to accept, but that death there was like... I was like, hang on a minute. Hang on a fucking minute. Only in fucking Vegas will that happen. Um, it's a push, but I think that it's this just point. over the top death for an over the top character. Absolutely. Um, and then perhaps in a fitting marifot- uh, metaphorical end, sweet dollar dollar bills are raining down over Vegas. Uh, as Cage has metaphorically made all of our lives much richer for the experience. Um, 
and then we get the nice little final interaction between Larkin and Poe. Uh, Poe says there's now three men in his life that he trusts. Larkin, welcome to the big leagues. You made it, honorary hogger. And then finally, Poe sees his wife, Tricia, and his daughter, Casey, for the first time in eight years. Finally gives the bunny to his daughter. Um, it's a little bit dirty. The bunny goes down the storm drain, but he, he reaches in, grabs it from the storm drain. A little bit dirty. Um, but I couldn't help think here, that if you're the daughter and you've only ever known your father through what your mother has told you, through the letters that you've been written, the first time you see him is amidst the chaos and destruction of a plane crashed in Las Vegas. <laughs> your father's covered in dirt and blood. Um, I can understand... You wanted to get. Didn't get the haircut. I can understand why she's a little bit hesitant to hug him at the end. Um, it makes sense. Um, but at this point, he's made it. The character art from the start, it's he's made it on July 14th. I assume this was still her her birthday, I think, but yeah, I'm pretty sure the events of this film take place over a single day. What a birthday though. What a note for birthday. So on it. Oh yeah, hell of a birthday present. Definitely some trauma to discuss with the therapist yes down the line. A lot to unpack for that poor girl. Um, but they get to hug in front of the Vegas lights. Um, How do I live without you? Uh, the imposter cover version, country version plays out. And then, uh, and then as we said, uh, we got, yeah, we got Victoria's serial killer and arch monster gets a delightfully wonderful ending, gambling, drinking cocktails. Um, There's a woman next to him, like on his arm as well, I think. Like he's a high roller apparently at this point. Um, like, how long has he been? <laughs> how long after the events of the film is that bit? Are you telling me he just got off the plane? <laughs> nicked some guy's blazer and just went to a casino and started shooting crabs. I mean, did he have his own escape plan? Did he have his own plan B? Did he kill someone to yeah, get that suit? That's that film. There's a whole other film about Garland Green. There's between, <laughs> between it fading out on Poe and his family and Garland Green immediately afterwards in the casino, there's a lot of information in that millisecond that we don't get that I need because it would have been perfectly fine if it just faded out on the family reuniting. That would have been perfectly acceptable. I didn't necessarily need or want to know what was happening with Green. The assumption that maybe he's just disappeared as mysterious as his character would have been suitable enough. Um, but they had to show us that he got that happy ending. Um, I mean, it, if this film came out today, that probably would have been a post credit scene, I think. That would have been some Marvel-esque get ready for the, the green sequel. The green spin-off. I don't want that. Um, green Air. About him. Green Air is coming. Um, the, the comedy buddy cop sequel. Oh, um, harrowing to think about what came next for that character. Um, but with that said... That brings us to the end of, some would argue, the definitive and best Nicolas Cage film, Con Air. Um, oh, what a journey this has been. What a journey. So, Tom, so your your sort of final thoughts on, on Con Air? There's nothing else like it. It's a film that 
is so much better than it has any right to be. It has a ridiculously stacked cast, just a, a cast of Oscar winners, Oscar nominees, really acclaimed, respected character actors. It's got Nicolas Cage with an incredible mullet and an accent that is simultaneously awful and incredible. I, and I'm using the word incredible a lot, but there's, there's no other word for it. That there's, This film exists on its own merit. It stands on its own. I'd say it might be the best Die Hard ripoff. Again, it's, it's between this and Speed. It does have quite a similar structure to Speed, where the, the main sort of uh, battle with the final villain with, doesn't actually happen on the bus slash plane. It's in another location, uh, which I only just realised re-watching it, how similar it is. But yeah, Con Air, it's got... Everything that you would expect and then more. I think a lot of people actually misremember this film because going back and watching it, it's not a, a cage rage performance at all. It's a it's quite a tender human uh, acting performance. He's doing a lot of great acting in this film, not, not just being a movie star. And that is something he brings to the table that had this film had a Seagal or an Arnie in it, um, or maybe even Stallone. Although I think Stallone is a, is a better actor than people give him credit for. It wouldn't have been the same. And I think that every time I watch this film, I appreciate it more and more. I laughed. I was emotionally invested. When it wants to be a big, crazy, set-piece-driven action film, it is that. And then when it wants to be a more uh, sort of low-key, focused uh, drama, I guess. I think it excel excels in that area as well. And I like the way it has multiple stories diverge and intersect. Uh, every character gets to where they need to be, for better or for worse, in certain cases. And yeah, it's a film I don't think I could ever get. I could ever get sick of, and I do not regret offering to to cover it on this podcast because I think, in the canon of Nicolas Cage, it, it stands head and shoulders above so many other films that he has done. He's been in better films. He's been in um, films where he's given a superior performance. I'll, I'll grant him that. But when it comes to a film that is pure distilled. Nicholas Cage delights. I can't think of anything better. It's it's quite a special film, and I he's he's yet to really reach that same height again. I think. And I think you summed it up um, articulately and succinctly. Um, it's one of the top Cage films, and I think that's that's a hard point to dispute again. He's given better performances elsewhere, but in terms of memorable films, um, in terms of going back to what I was saying at the start, a lot of the time when you ask people what is their favourite Cage film, they will say Con Air. Maybe it's for different reasons, but this is um, understandably one of the most memorable Cage performances. It's not a Cage Rage film, as he said. Um, it's a restrained performance with action and 
plot lines and characters that have arcs and narratives that make sense. We get from point A to point B. Um, the only exception is Should Have Green had that ending. We can debate that until the cows come home, but it's got it's got the jeopardy, it's got the explosive action. Um, the narrative is pretty sound. The, the climax of the film is as wonderfully ridiculous and over the top as it's built up to be. Um, and there's a reason why Con Air will go down as one of, I think, the great Nicolas Cage films and on, uh, as we say, the Mount Rushmore of Cage films as well. Um, and with that said, um, I believe that brings us to the end of episode 26 of Cage Rage, the Nicolas Cage podcast. Uh, my huge thanks once again to Tom Brune-Jones. Thank you for sharing your insight, your expertise, taking the time to come on and discuss uh, the great stature of our generation, Nicolas Cage, and joining me on the journey to true Cage Nirvana. It has been a pleasure to have you on. I uh, would love to have you back sometime. Uh, maybe it'll be for Mandy, because uh, that looks like that one. There's a lot to discuss there as oh, well. Mandy, I think uh, uh, the adaptation episode as well. I'd be keen to do adaptation, which because that's, uh, like I said, that's probably my favourite film that he has been in. Um, very different speed, uh, but I think it's an absolute masterpiece. And I, I don't know if uh, there's any cage performance I like more, to be honest. So yeah, adaptation, Mandy, what I mean, his his run is a lot better than people give it credit for. So it's it's been my pleasure to come in and talk about, uh, I guess the ultimate Nicolas Cage film, really. Maybe not his best, but there's something to be said for his charm and its, its earnestness. And yeah, if you want to uh, read more about my uh, my appreciation for very specific genre stuff, uh, you can follow me on Twitter, at uh, tbroomy. Uh, whenever I write an article about whatever, um, it normally ends up on my Twitter feed. Uh, check out most of my stuff at Shout out Cultured Vultures as well, which me and Daryl, we're both cut from that cloth. That's how we met each other. Um, you'll find me talking about a lot of weird shit over there. Uh, and yeah, if you want to talk to me about Nicolas Cage and his incredible back catalogue or any uh, weird cult actors or, or films, I'm there for you. I'm, I'm, I'm always talking about that stuff. So yeah, check me out on Twitter and uh, maybe not Facebook because uh, I don't want to talk to people I don't know on Facebook. <laughs> well, there you have it. Follow Tom on Twitter at tbroomy, myself at cage underscore podcast. Feel free anytime, day or night to chat Nicolas Cage. It's what I'm here for and I'm sure it's what Tom will absolutely love as well uh, on the twitter page the link tree with all the other links as well um but once again thank you to tom for taking the time to join me on the journey to true cage nirvana hope you've been enjoying the episode as well this has been a good one an insightful one uh really happy to take the time to talk cage especially conair i think we'll be seeing tom again probably for adaptation 
very likely for Mandy. So we will see you when the train to Cage Nirvana pulls up at those stations. But until then, thank you again for listening. Keep on, keep on caging and a bye.